We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. This place is an insane asylum in the swamp! Oh, my! Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Scared money don't make money, you know? Welcome to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. I'm your host, James DiVirgilio, alongside Alan Williams, and there is nothing better than winning, Alan. Indeed. So much better to come on to this podcast after a win, and I don't care, and I don't think that you care, that A&M had maybe half a roster. Because it certainly didn't bother LSU when they beat us with half their roster (laughs) several years ago. So a win is a win in the SEC I'm taking this. I'm feeling good. It, again, it's just it's just better to discuss what could have been better in a football game when you won than after you lost. For sure. I mean, I that's actually what we're going to open with like, yeah, does it matter that they're missing all those guys? No. Maybe in a different year, like where you're trying to measure yourself up against the very best and you're like, how good was this win? I don't know. Maybe I don't want to get a false sense of encouragement. Right now I just want to win the game. We did it. Just win, baby. Al Davis. There you go. Love it. Little Al Davis in the pod to start things off. As always, if you like the content on this show, follow us on social media, sub to our YouTube channel, and become a patron on Patreon where you can become a donor by dropping us a dono. Lots of dono activity this week, Alan. But first, shout out to B-Red and Carly, the commissioner, for their work and efforts each week to help bring you this very content. And also... It's been a great success thus far for the GNFP Sammy, as we call it, on WhatsApp. So if you're not on there yet, I'll post those links. We also started the GNFP Java Discord uh, for the guy who started that, Josh Javahari, who uh, got that loaded up. So if you're a Discord person, those links will be there as well. If you're a WhatsApp person, that link is there for you. But lots of good stuff. There was a lot of really good messaging going back and forth during the game. So if you're looking for a chance to exchange kind of educated high-level discussion with fellow fans, those two places are for you. All right, let's celebrate some new donors. Uh, coming in with some small donos from James Dial, or could be Dial, D-Y-L-L. Let's do it. A-L, what do you think, Dial? Dial, Dial yeah. sounds good, D-Y-L-L, yeah, Dial. James Dial, great first name, obviously. Uh, Jeremy Silpst, who is an annual donor and a brand new listener, had only been listening for maybe a couple of weeks and came in hot and dropped a donut. Let's go. Come on so board. So love that, Jeremy. Glad to have you on board. 
Uh, Medium donos, a level up from Cody Alsip. Thank you, Cody, for your continued support. And then a new donor in Eric Yeary. Yo, what's up? Yeah, what's up, Eric? Welcome aboard. Gator up in Mississippi right now. Love it. Love it. We have listeners uh, across the country and the world. So it's really fun to look at our listener map nowadays and see where everyone is because they're all over the place. Um, Large dono, a level up from the Moore family who gives a 19... Dollar and forty one cent dono, which I felt like means something, and I could not really figure out what that means. Yeah, let us know. So let us know. I thought about it for a while. I couldn't tie it into it's South little, Carolina. It's a little riddle. I couldn't tie it in A and M. I like these riddles, but I couldn't get it. Uh, XL dono, Victor Redman coming in from specifically the Sammy thread, talking about how long he's loved the pod, but then really being able to get on the GNFP Sammy and discuss football with people around the country just did it for him. Is that really Sammy and then I have to mention something that occurred on the thread. Uh, one one user on the thread, Troy Moses, put a, a rally hoodie on, if you will, at halftime. And this hoodie got a lot of attention on the thread. Uh, and so they were joking as they were going to have like an, a hoodie dono or perhaps a hoodie a hoodie dono versus the Discord dono competition down the road. <laughs> the but at any rate, hoodie. yeah, Troy, well done with the hoodie. I hope you're still wearing that. Uh, so we have it for this week's yeah, game. Please don't ever take it off then. Don't ever take it off. Uh, XXL donos. We've got Mike O'Neill who we missed last week. Mike, I'm very sorry. You donoed last week. I missed it. I failed miserably, but we're here this week to give you the love you deserve. Uh, He had also recommended some additional remedies for our voices, Alan. You know, we had the issues with the voices this season, and we'll take those into account next time, given his background as a singer. All right, level up from Jamie Galliano, who tries to predict whether Florida is going to win or lose, and then essentially increases the dono each week. He's also a dono legend, all-around all-star. Uh, Kevin Feely coming in with a half hundo bomb because why not? It's half a hundo bomb. $50 dono. Kevin, thanks so much. Wrote to us as well. Uh, just loving the content. Really something that's a highlight for his week. Thank you for that. And then an actual hundo bomb coming in from the user known as Tank Top Timmy. That's a great name. Love that one. Very strong. Tank Top Timmy. Way to come in there strong. And still sitting on the throne yeah. is James Ridge, who took his throne back very quickly. Authoritatively, the castle was stormed and he said, no, 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 no. You're going to have this for a week from, from Barry Jenkins, but I'm taking this back. All right, Alan, walk us through the do legends and Kings. All right. Let's start with those former Kings on the throne. Barry Jenkins. There you go. Guy Tumbleson, Cooper and Kylie Craig, Jason Walker, the big homie, Lil Payton, Constantine, double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashmi, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marsalisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truitt, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Jamie Galliano, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Rummery, and Craig Scarato. Okay, James, uh, <coughs> both you and I predicted a loss. Shame on us. Well, you know, that's, uh, that's how it felt like the things were going there, and through the first half, well, we were wrong, but not wrong. There we go. Uh, yeah, I think obviously I will say this. When the news came out on Saturday that so many impactful right. players are going to be out of their roster, I would have flipped Florida to a win. I'm guessing you probably would have, especially know. once 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 Wegman was Wegman. out. That was the key one. Probably. That for me was the difference they had um, in general. Now, obviously the first half, <laughs> like you we'll said. To that. But anyway, I, I do think I would have flipped it when he went out. He was a big reason why I thought – they were going to have more success, uh, and I think they would have probably had even more success. But anyway, we're both I don't know, wrong. Man. I don't, I'm happy to be wrong. I don't know if I would have flipped it because okay. what what we've been seeing is what they then put on film in the first half defensively. 
if that same thing happens in the second half, sure. No, I mean it, it wasn't going to be like I was confident, but sure. I think there was enough. There was enough turmoil. They were missing twelve starters. Yes. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of dudes. Uh, they have a lot of other dudes too. They do. So. They play a lot of freshmen anyway. But that's a lot of guys for sure. Uh, so the Gators do win forty-one to twenty-four. Beautiful. It's great. It's great to say that. Probably should have been more. Should have been fifty, probably. Yeah, I mean, just a few kind of circumstantial things down there at the end. But um, your keys to the game. I'll start with you. Defense. They generate two turnovers. And they yes, did. they did too. Let's go. And do the Gators get two hundred twenty-five yards passing? Yes, they do. They got to two seventy-nine. Um, or excuse me, they limit Texas A&M to two hundred twenty-five yards passing. Which they did not. They did not. It was close, though. Close to that. Well, I mean, it was bad. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, I mean, not by too much difference. Offensively rushing. Here's that I was swapping these out here. 200 yards rushing. They got up, the Gators got to 291. So and that, that was that, that was the major yeah major storyline there. All right. I, I wanted the defense to hold them to less than 40% on third down. Nailed it. Nailed it. They did it. They went four of thirteen. Which just say that again. Four of thirteen. That's like therapy for, yes. for us skater fans. All year long dealing with like twelve of thirteen, ten of thirteen, <laughs> four of thirteen. That was amazing. Even after this game, with that number, Gators are still like towards the bottom of third down percentage even oh, after so posting bad. something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um and I want to see the offense have four point five yards per carry, be above that. They got it to a very healthy five point eight. So there you go. They did the stuff we asked them to do for the most part. And they won the game. And that's what's fun to the keys to the game segment. Like we say each week, we try to identify the things where if these things hit, Florida should win. And that's that's what happened here. It's a great win um, for this program. It's, it's a crucial win, I think, given everything that went on leading into that week. For sure. Armani, Cox, Wilcoxon. Things were trending really down as far as emotional for a lot of the fan base. And a win like this can go a long, long way towards restoring faith or just creating optimism around the program in general. For sure. I think you need some of those stabilizing moments. Uh, you need some good things to happen, even in a long-term rebuild where you have like big visions of where you want to go. You you still need these things to happen. And if you miss them, if you miss the mark on them, it, it can derail you potentially if you miss enough of them or just slow it potentially. And we never really know. There's those sliding doors kind of moments, but... Uh, yeah, I think Gator, it feels good for the team. feels good for Gator Nation. I'm sure Napier is thrilled. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this. We kind of tipped this a little bit. I mean, I, I know we said it doesn't matter to us that they're missing all those guys, whether we value the win or not. But you think the game turns differently significantly with Wigman, Wegman, Wigman, whatever you say, and maybe a few of those other guys as well? He's a freshman, so there's going to be a lot of variance in his game, but I think so. I mean, Haynes King is just so limited as a quarterback. Super, super limited. And obviously he hurt Florida early on with some plays. The guys are wide open, but there were throws available in that game in the second half that he missed almost every one. And I don't think that Wegman misses all of them like that. And I think that would have changed the game. It doesn't mean that the game would have necessarily flipped uh, but I think it would have been different, or at least it could have been different. The game you got out of Haynes King is what you would expect him to have on a relatively good day for him, especially in the first half and then a horrible day in the second half. But more or less, that's kind of his final stat line is kind of who he is as a quarterback. Right. So I think 
to me, Wegman offered a lot of upside. So I think it could have been impactful. Anytime you have a quarterback who can, who can probably play or at least can sling it around as a talent of Wegman, the game will feel and look different. The team will believe differently. Uh, so yeah, I think it was a huge factor that he couldn't play. For sure. And as you said, maybe he makes more mistakes. Maybe does. you never know how things are going to go. But um, I think the game would have definitely been closer in the second half. But I do like this quote from Coach Napier. When I guess asked about the flu going around and stuff and, you know, <laughs> various things uh, kind of around that. I don't know what the exact question was, but he says, we don't put our stuff out there as much, We but we've had our issues too. It's that time of year. So I think they got hit pretty hard. And a lot of the numbers you saw them floating around were like flu, injuries, and suspensions. It was everything. It was everything. So it wasn't just like the entire team got hit by the flu. So, yeah, I mean, on one hand, that's a a big moment there. On the other hand, you want to be able to fight through it. Um, So I'm sure for the Gators, they're going to take this regardless, right? They're going to feel good about it. A&M is still one of the most talented teams in the country, even if they're not playing it like that. All right, let me ask you this, though. How low were you at halftime? I mean, that end-of-half scenario where the Gators have a chance to really put some distance between them. They punt. A&M comes back and scores. The Gators don't do anything. They're getting the ball at halftime. How low were you? Were you feeling it at that moment? You know what's funny is I wasn't – I was mad, obviously, very mad with the one-minute handling, which we'll talk about in the coach's corner for Florida a little bit later. I was mad about that, but you know this defense is statistically the worst Florida's ever had since I've been following Florida. Uh, to expect that they're going to be good at this point of the season is to expect something that reality would not have given you. So it was not surprising to me even at all that we were an absolute sieve because we are every single week. The offense was pleasantly doing really well, and that, I think, was assuaging how I felt about it, and therefore that's why I was so angry that with a minute left in a football game where you have scored almost every time you've had the football, you've had not even a single chance for like a negative, really bad play to happen that you shut that junk down. And again, we'll talk about that more. So at halftime, certainly things were not feeling great. In fact, it's hard to even get back into that mindset of what halftime felt like because the second half was so So good. good. But this is a good lesson in football. I try my best every game not to get too high or too low until the game is totally over. Um, I imagine this is why I'm playing quarterback in the football game. And one half of football does not decide football games. I mean, I watch a copious amount of football every single weekend, NFL, college, etc. And if you just took what the first half looked like in a lot of those football games, it looks nothing like the end result. So you kind of have to just take it and carry on. Football is a long game. It's one of the best things about it. You get a lot of plays. You get a lot of chances to change what happened in the first half. Uh, but it obviously, I think it felt pretty bad. To most Florida fans out there, I think there was all sorts of fire Tony immediately. Don't let him come back on the team plane. I feel like I've heard that somewhere before. And from, yeah, and then, and then you know, not from me, but I mean from from the chats and <laughs> yeah. the other stuff out there. And then also, of course, the same kind of thing, which is in general, like how can we not be the team that's missing half their players and et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, Hayden's king and all the stuff you'd expect here. So it was it was, it low. was low. I mean, I think it would have been lower had it not been almost expected. But you're right. I mean, let's let's take the... The mighty Jacksonville Jaguars, they're down 17-0. Come back and win that game 24-20. I mean, incredible things can happen. But I, I did think it felt like we're cruising towards a really bad rest of the year. And the second half now opens up possibilities for 
much better futures. One, because you won the game. And two, maybe there's some opportunity for growth here. Um, and so I, that's just a big flip for probably where a lot of people are feeling at halftime. I, I know uh, the infamous JT Raymond was, you know, sending off hundreds of messages in all caps about firing Tony. And yeah, a lot of people felt that way. It felt like, what are we doing? Can we really be doing this again? Yes, we were. But then things turned around. Okay, let's talk about the offense first. You ready to talk about the game? I'm so ready. Let's do okay. it. Florida only really goes 4 of 12 on third down, which we had to double check that statistic. Despite the fact that Florida was really successful, yeah, that's not a good ratio. So a lot of points, a lot of yards, despite the fact that Florida's only 4 of 12 on third down. 1 of 2 on fourth down. They allowed two sacks. 492 yards total. 201 passing, 291 rushing. AR, very nice day for him. 17 of 28, 201 yards, two TDs. That's a 60% completion rate. And don't have his rushing numbers here in front of me, but obviously a lot of yards there too. ETN, 17 carries, 80 yards, and B-Red notes, 15 ankles broken. So I was glad he was keeping track of that stat. Montreal, 22 carries, 100 yards, one TD. So a nice day for him as well. Uh, okay, um... Felt like the offense flourished in most aspects, like overall played well in each of the places that you would want them to. Did you find something like most encouraging from that performance? Yes, without a doubt. It was Florida's performance in the passing game. And beyond that, it was what Florida put on film. What Florida achieved in the passing game was probably 30 to 40% of what was available on film. This could have been a mega 400-plus yard passing game. You could have had three or four touchdowns of 40 yards or longer in this football game. You had multiple receivers getting open versus man-to-man coverage routinely. You had running backs running slant and goes and wheel routes. You had stuff we have not seen before, and you had players getting open. And that was very, very encouraging. And again, that was against an A&M defense, obviously missing players. Their safety gets knocked out with a targeting. They were down people, but... Florida had struggled to do this against anybody outside of Tennessee and A&M had a significant edge in their matchup versus Florida in the passing game, at least on paper, they'd been a good pass defense uh, and Florida did really well. And again, it could have been much better. Uh, AR is still very, very young. We'll talk about him. He's only really played 11 or 12 football games in the past three years of his football life, Alan. People have to remember that. Uh, so a lot of his inexperience was on display here in this football game. He still had a good game, especially for where he is as a quarterback. But again, on film, what you want to see is, could this have been bigger? And the answer is yes, it could have been much bigger. And that's the most encouraging thing I've seen all season. And I think, Alan, I think the answer for that has to do with Zipperer going out for the rest of the year with an injury. Florida's use of 11 personnel almost the entire game until the fourth quarter where Florida then struggled running 12 personnel significantly changed what happened in this football game. AR is a much better quarterback when you're spreading out the field east-west. Florida is a much more dynamic team. Florida played multiple sets with three and four receivers in the field, something they had been hesitant to do. Florida went empty seven or eight times in this game. This was a much more athletic team-friendly offense coupled with getting the ball to Ricky on jet sweeps, on reverses, finding ways to get your best players to football. This was just overall better, and I think that's what led to the open receivers. Florida was able to get AM guessing incorrectly more often than we've seen all year long for as to what play Florida was going to run. 
And that is a welcome thing to be able to say on the podcast. And look, hats off to Billy. He's been much maligned by a lot of Ga- by a lot of the Gator fans. Of course, we've had frustrations with only his passing game, both design and play calling. But this was his best game to date as a play call for Florida, even better than Tennessee. There were more people open in this game. The play designs were much better uh, by and large than we've seen all season long. So it's his best stuff on film thus far. Yeah, I would agree 100%. I it's weird how you end up in these scenarios sometimes where your hand is forced or you have to consider something that you don't want to do. So again, 11 personnel is one tight end rather than 12 personnel, which is two tight ends. So you end up more often than not with another receiver, right? I guess you could put two running backs in there, but uh, three receivers, one running back, one tight end. So if the offense felt different to you and you weren't sure what it was, that was it. And functionally, it was much more dynamic. It felt like AR was more comfortable, felt more explosive. Like you said, even it didn't feel like we were maxing out like whatever we were going to do, that there was plays to be had on the field. And if they didn't work, it was, well, maybe something went a little wrong there or, you know, oh, gosh, could have had that one back. But I had confidence they were going to move the ball almost every time. And when it didn't work out, you know, that's fine. But... Um, I like the way the offense just looked and felt, not even just looking at the raw production. And maybe that's because I'm used to seeing a lot more 11 personnel in college football and other places. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That was really, really interesting. Keon Zipper going out, right, who's not been used that much as a receiver, but in that 12 personnel with him and Xander's, the staff being forced to turn to something else. I don't know. Maybe it's a turning point for them. Maybe the team, maybe not. Maybe they'll, they'll figure it out and go right back to 12. But yes, yeah, so it didn't seem as predictable as you said. Right. Uh, and to be fair, Florida, Florida runs 11 personnel more than they run 12. But this was a much more creative application of 11 personnel. Florida sure. was spreading the field more east-west than we've seen all season long. They were much more creative with how they designed a variety of plays. And I think that's the difference we're expecting. So don't don't get us wrong. Billy's always run more 11 than 12, but oftentimes his 11 is a combo off of 12, and it's still a bunch tight set. It's still very heavy kind of running or vertical shot. You still throw a lot of those two receiver sets out there. This was a much more spread-oriented attacking game plan. I think, again, in large part because you lost your best tight end. You lost your best pass catching and your best blocking tight end and zipper. Xander's had to carry the load, and he did that in 11 personnel almost exclusively by himself again all the way until that fourth quarter where Florida, despite having a lead and despite having kind of playing downhill, brought in Odom, played 12, and really struggled to run the ball effectively to put the game away in the red zone. But they kept going back to 12 personnel, and I think actually it kept AM in the game longer than it otherwise would have. And I think that again shows you how important that formation is to Billy that he basically used the fourth quarter, in my opinion, as like a lab to rep out 12 personnel for the rest of the year. This is not going to go away. He loves this formation. Uh, Like anyone else who runs the Shanahan system, it's the bedrock of the system. For Florida this year, I just just think it's a blessing right now that we probably aren't going to be able to run it as much as he wants to run it. And I think that's going to help this offense and this football team. And of course, that's me saying that from the sideline, far removed from coaching. I'm not in the meetings, but just what we've seen on film, Florida's much more dynamic with what they were doing uh, on Saturday against AM. So it's a welcome change for me. So the, let's talk about running the ball there because it's a little deceiving potentially because the stats on running the ball 
showed that Florida was pretty effective, both in yards per carry and overall yardage. But as you mentioned, towards the end of the game and, and throughout the game at times, it was a little boom bust. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, that Florida broke some big plays and often was tackled for little to no gain. Um, when you went back and looked, did it seem like there was something that a was doing or something Florida was ineffective at and running the ball as, as really effective as they wanted to? I thought Florida's offensive line struggled in this football game at times. Torrance probably had his worst game as a Gator. He got beat multiple times one-on-one. Ethan White has kind of maybe started to struggle consistently a little bit now. I think teams are keying on putting pressure in his area. Uh, he outright whiffed on multiple blocks. Uh, and I think that's all it takes, right? If you're running football team in a zone scheme, if you have one guy miss, the whole play is dead. So I thought credit to AM, They played very aggressive against Florida's run game. They were willing to basically put seven guys in the box frequently. They were willing to aggressively try to kind of shut down what Florida wanted to do. But what happened, Alan, is AM took a unique strategy that ultimately cost them in huge plays. They died on the hill of stopping Florida's inside running game for the most part. And that's something no team has done yet against Florida. And that's why there was so much success with outside zone. Obviously, with AR and the zone read, that's the most success we've seen them have all year. Right. Because on multiple plays, they just didn't care They're about AR keeping down. it. And that could be a mistake by AM, but there was a concerted effort by them to stop the inside running game of Florida. And that's, that's inside out of what we've seen other teams do. Very curious to me that Durkin would have tried to do that. I'm sure he has his reasons. But I think as Florida got a feel for the fact that that's what AM was doing, they began to craft ways to attack the outside. You saw more jet sweeps. You saw a double reverse. You saw a lot of plays that will take advantage of teams that are trying to bottle up heavily the inside. And again, Napier crushes it in the run game coordinating play calling and play design. I mean, he he kills it in that. And obviously, once he got a good feel for what AM was doing, I think we started the chunk yards again. Uh, but we could not. We really were not super capable of consistently lining up and running the ball at them, which is what you saw again in the fourth quarter with that 12 personnel. It'd be kind of like one yard, one yard. Maybe we'd get seven or eight, but it was not like a four, 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 which you'd want to see um, in, in that regard. So interesting game, I think, with the running game. A lot of, you know, really no gains, but then a, a ton of chunk plays in this football game. Um, and obviously home run hitters, you know, AR scores two touchdowns on zone reads. Zone reads, yeah. And I was, you know, looking at some of the clips and watching live, you see the defensive end basically almost like selling out. I don't know if he's, as you said, not if maybe they asked him to do that. Maybe he's just, he's a freshman. So he's like biting the fake, but yeah, the, when AR turns the corner there and is just gone, it's like, man, that's not the way you want to defend that. Uh, let's talk about the various receivers who caught a lot of balls here. Obviously also, you know, Justin shorter in this game. So we got to see some production from Frazier's who caught an amazing touchdown on an incredible throw from Richardson into the corner on that fade. Man, great catch. You saw Caleb Douglas get loose from his man and make a nice play in the end zone. So for Florida to be this effective throwing the ball without shorter, they needed other guys to play well. Ricky, of course, has some nice catches. So it's good to see them getting production out of guys they don't normally get production from. Yeah, for sure. And Douglas runs really good routes. Uh, that That's the bottom line. Like if you look at Frazier's who generally runs pretty poor routes, in my opinion, but is a, is a top level athlete, Douglas runs clean, crisp routes, stop routes, go routes. He ran a beautiful corner route they held him on uh, for the touchdown. Just that's a fantastic. In, I mean, he, he really was taught very well. I mean, he runs a excellent route and that's why I think they like him 
in general. That For makes sure. a big difference in, in what's happening. You can't just run a sloppy route no matter how athletic you are at this level. Uh, but it was great to see a lot of these guys getting the game plan. And again, sometimes, right, what feels like a hardship is a blessing. Florida has an AR has relied on shorter so heavily. Looks at in this so game, much. he didn't have a chance to pre-snap read. I'm just going to go to shorter. He couldn't do that. And and make no mistake about it, AR left a lot of room for improvement on this field here. There were a ton of chances for better plays. But I do think overall, it just helped him not thinking I'm throwing this ball to shorter nine times out of ten. Um, and, it, and it also allows a lot of these guys to get a chance to contribute and Florida to run again, a lot more receiver sets that involved just more than two or three and hats off to them. They looked competent. They looked solid. They were getting open. Uh, the timing was, was, was good. These are all things that imply there's good coaching. Timing is good. Depth is good. A lot of the receiver stuff looks really nice. So I think Kerry Colbert uh, gets credit here for getting his guys ready in this football game. And they had a really nice debut on the road for a lot of those guys. And again, Frazier's makes his best catch as a Gator AR throws. I think what was one of his two best passes as a Gator on that fade route. That was an NFL level play against great coverage. Uh, so a lot to celebrate here for the receiving core. For sure. And let's talk about Richard himself. We've been mentioning him obviously throughout here. Um, you know, he played pretty well in this game, felt in command. You mentioned something that we've kind of skirted around. It's harder to like quantify, but he seemed to be, more engaged emotionally, physically. And it's again, it's, it's, this is like, you know, kind of body language doctor, you know, it's hard to make firm conclusions about this, but he did, his demeanor did seem different. He seemed more aggressive, more engaged, I guess is the words that I'm coming up with. Um, And I, I don't know if that benefited him, but that was a noticeable thing for me at least. That was noticeable, hopefully, for everyone. It was the most engaged we've seen him from the start of a game to the end of a game as a Gator. And that was a welcome change. We just last week called for this exact thing, right? We said that he needs to be more demonstrative as a leader for this football team. He needs to be the alpha on the field with his engagement with the game itself. You can't look disinterested. As a quarterback, you have to be calm. But you need to make sure that you're feeding your team the necessary intensity it takes to win football games at this level. And it's quite possible, Alan, AR's a Gainesville kid, growing up here, lived here. This is his family. It's his hometown. Something seems to happen to him when he gets outside of the state of Florida. Yeah, his he best games have come. Plays better on the road. And not just, I mean, I'm Florida, Florida, Georgia is different. That's in Jacksonville, whatever. But also, it's Georgia, but regardless, like when he's gotten outside of the state, his best games have occurred there. But I want to see him carry this emotional intensity into this game this weekend against South Carolina. That's going to change how Florida's football team plays and reacts to him. He was frustrated on false starts. He was animated when he had a good running play. He was leading his team, blocking and doing things. It's possible that he's a guy who kind of ebbs and flows with his health. Clearly, it's the most healthy he's been in this football game. But in general, yeah, bottle that up, AR. Keep that going. That's the kind of attitude and leadership and intensity we need from you on that football field. That's the engagement. If you're Napier, you have to want to see in your quarterback. That's going to lift everyone's play up to know the quarterbacks, you know, really energetically into this football game on every single play, good and bad. He's expecting a lot of the offense. And mention his health. Again, this is us like reading tea leaves a little bit, but on that long touchdown run, he turns the corner we joked that he got up into third gear out of, you know, hypothetical five there. He speeds up and then he slows down. Like That's how fantastic of an athlete it is. He's not even really 
by the look of it running that hard and he still outpaces everybody on the field and coasts into the end zone. I would love to see him at some point get healthy enough where more often than not he can get up into fourth and fifth gear and just toast people where he's not thinking about his hamstring or he's not thinking about how do I preserve myself because I don't think we've really got to see that since USF last year. And man, that it's like almost scary to watch him run that fast at that low of an effort. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. You heard you heard RG3, a super explosive quarterback in his time before the injury, basically saying the broadcast that AR is a more athletic version of anyone else you've seen before playing quarterback. He's faster and stronger than, you know, guys like Lamar he's naming and and that's you let that settle in. That's that's remarkable now for Florida. It hasn't been there. We saw it flash last week. It's clearly on display this week. I still don't think he's at 100% because of what you just mentioned. He dialed that back down. But he is so fast that he can easily outrun a safety with an angle in his third gear and dial it back, and they still can't touch him. That's legit 4-4 game speed, not 4-4 on a track on your best moment when you've, you're rested and you're breathing and there's no lactic acid in your muscles and everything's perfect. That's with pads on, with a helmet on. He is significantly faster than most of the opposition is going to be. Uh, and and obviously it was on display there. And, and that's that's why his ceiling continues to be so high as a quarterback. And, and again, you heard RG3 talk about his arm strength. We've said his arm strength is unreal. There's very sure. few NFL quarterbacks who have that. On the flip side of that, Alan, Troy Aikman every single week will tell you arm strength is the most overrated statistic for a quarterback, like attribute rather for a quarterback, which I think is also true. Ball placement and accuracy and then read read decision timing, if you will, how quickly you're able to make the right read. Those are far more important than your arm strength. But as a redshirt sophomore who's played less than 12 games, fewer than 12 games in three years, when you're seeing the ceiling stuff on display, you're an NFL GM and scout, and you're thinking, if he can get the other stuff, his ceiling is unlimited as right. a player. And he may never get the other stuff, but that is why you hear people continue to talk about these things, even though a lot of Florida fans seem to be calling for his, his benching almost every week, forgetting that, again, he's played less than, fewer than, rather, 12 games in two or three years, and he's figuring stuff out still. He's learning in a new system. But moments like those, don't don't sleep on that, right? That's not normal. That's not an everyday thing. There's very few quarterbacks that can do that. And he also, again, has arm strength to go with it. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, you see it on not quite back-to-back plays, but if you talk about that fade, a few plays before, he throws just a bullet maybe it's a few plays after just down the field. It's not really that big of a play, but you can just see the ball go from his hand to the receiver so fast. And if you can make both those throws, you can run like that and you have a ability to read the field. There's not really much you can't do again. He's got to work on some mechanics some ball placement, but it's funny to see people, whether in comments or talk about, he can't read the field. He can read the field. Sometimes he, breaks down and mentally, emotionally and stops reading the field, but he can read the field. He's shown that plenty. And that's for me, that's number one. If I'm looking at a quarterback, can he process? Can he make the right decision? Decision? Can he get the ball out on time? That's the first stuff. Yeah. And does he have a, a good enough arm to get the ball there in most throws? You can win with that guy in a lot of different scenarios. And then if you add on all the stuff that Richardson has, Man, you are talking about a, a top 10 player. Now, again, he he hasn't shown that he's consistent enough to to be drafted in that slot, but that's why people like to project him there 
because that's the path he could potentially be on. And that's the key is consistency, right? To be a pro in any sport, it comes down to being extremely consistent. And that's where AR is still very far away. He's inconsistent in his reads. He's inconsistent in his timing. He's inconsistent with how he chooses to move about the pocket. Some plays, it's absolutely perfect. Steps up, eyes downfield, waits till the last moment, delivers a strike. Other times, he leaves far too early, which we saw him do a lot in this game. And in fact, the numbers the numbers bear this out, Alan. Florida and AR really struggled versus non-pressure looks of AM. They brought three multiple times. Florida was the least successful against that. They were the least successful against zone defense, despite having a lot of open receivers. But AR would give up on the play right at the moment of truth, or he simply would miss a very obvious read. He would stick too long on a deep read, would miss the intermediate route that was wide, wide open, as open as it's been all year long, then go to the check down too late. The timing is just off on these reads. But again, that's okay. Every single week on the show, we come on here, we give you what's optimal. What would a pro quarterback do in the system? What would I coach this quarterback to do if I'm watching film? But don't mistake that with discouragement week to week for a redshirt sophomore who has not played a lot. You're going to tell him, hey, here's what I need you to get to. Let's look at these things and let's get better this week. When we're running play action and we're sending two receivers out, your first check is deep. If you see two guys bail or three guys bail, it's cover three and they're already all off. You're off that route. That route is done. That route's dead. You're going to go to your intermediate route. And if that route's not open, you go to your check down. And that should all take less than one and a half seconds. But AR will watch almost for two full seconds what's happening with that deep route. Why is he doing this, Alan? Because his arm is abnormally strong. A guy with a lesser arm has a window to throw a 40 or 50 yard pass that lasts maybe a second, a second and a half. For AR, he can throw it 75, 80 if he has a good platform. And so he's kind of just waiting way too long it's an arm strength something good gonna happen down the field correct and so that you have to get away from that you have to be a distributor and not a not a guy who's got an arm that goes 80 it's a it's a timing thing so i think that's his biggest hurdle to overcome and then obviously just getting a feel for quarterbacking right reading mesh routes is a new thing for him how do you read that out how do you stick with that staying in the pocket long enough and not escaping trusting your offensive line especially when they bring three they drop eight and bring three. You know you have time. Stay in that pocket. Lock in. Trust your alignment. Don't escape into pressure. These are soft skills that he needs to improve on, and there are plenty of them. There's a huge room here for AR's improvement. And obviously, games like these are great to put on film because you win, your quarterback feels good. He has a lot of really good throws you can pump him up with, and then you can roll the film room and say, look, AR, a lot of amazing stuff here. Let's get you better for this week. This week, we run this look. Let's hit this faster. And that's what football is all about. So I think this is an exciting time for Billy coaching AR. And he kind of leaned into that, that the issues with AR are not physical, right? It's just mental. And he's got to get the game to slow down. He's got to trust what he's seeing on the football field. He's not there yet, but this game on the road is a nice step forward and a building block for him to hopefully learn from what he sees on this film and improve. And we got to give a little shout out to uh, a little fag football style there on a really big fourth down pickup there rolls out of the pocket maybe you shouldn't have had to but sees Montreal makes a pitch behind the line scrimmage is a little forward that's okay he's good behind the line and they pick it up I love that he did that I love they had the presence of mind I love that Montreal was ready for it and they made that play that was awesome yeah it was great and then AR celebrating on the field of course all that actually comes from a play he could have just stayed in the pocket thrown a dig route converted which again I think if you're Napier you're going to talk about that hey the higher percentage plays this one but I love that you're capable of this once you get out of the pocket, be creative, be free. Uh, and he he earned that on a fourth and six, like you said, that was crucial. And so you always want to celebrate when you're coaching a quarterback. You want to celebrate even the athletic moments where perhaps you missed 
the more normal throw because you don't want your quarterback to always feel like, hey, optimal is this, optimal is this, optimal is this. The game moves fast. You're not always going to see every open receiver. No pro quarterback sees every open receiver either. But you want to keep your quarterback learning and knowing and speeding up that read that read clock in their head. If I see this positioning, I know this throw is going to be open. It just makes it better for them in the long run. But that was a fun play. A lot of celebration afterwards uh, in general from AR and obviously from Montreal. And yeah, definitely very flag football. Like, you know, that occurs every single week in flag football. They'll attack the line of scrimmage, stay behind the line, pitch it forward. Uh, kind of something you see a lot and not so often in tackle. So perhaps those two guys have been working on their uh, their flag game. And yeah, and the reason coaches normally wouldn't want someone to do that because it feels risky. In that situation, it, well, one, it's fourth down. But two, it wasn't actually that risky of a play. No, I mean, it's an incomplete pass or, right. or a first down in that right. situation. But it's a good thing he did it because he probably was not going to get the first down running on his own. And it's it's super heads up by Montreal. That's not part of the play. Montreal's a check down. He just kind of pays attention recognizing this is probably going to happen. And it's two good athletes being creative and then getting a first down out of it. Okay, let's talk about change you'd like to see. I assume you would like the Gators to continue with running more 11 personnel and in the style that they ran it this week. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's step one. Let's run more pers- 11 personnel. Let's spread the field out more. Let's keep getting one of our best players, uh, you know, Etienne the ball as much as possible. I mean, he's obviously just phenomenal out there. You, you saw, if you listen, if you watch the game on television, you, you really heard RG3 gushing about <laughs> the play that etn had where he, missed, he makes like four or five guys right. miss. i put that on film review his feet are remarkable he keeps them underneath him at all times he's hard to get off balance he can slide through tiny little slivers of a hole he can really fake you out with which way you think he's going through a hole i mean he as a freshman already has all of the high level skills you'd expect senior running backs to have remarkable talent let's keep finding ways to get him the ball and then i think in general uh, let's get rid of something which we've talked about before i'm ready and it's, it's still not gone so Florida had quick game. We talked about quick game last week. Yeah. Florida had seven plays of quick game that were very effective this week. So first of all, hats off to that. We need more quick game. That's really important. More zero drop. Let's keep that going. Um, but secondly, we continue to run these screens to receivers when it's a three-on-three look or even a three-on-four look, which A, is not a good look, and B, the plays themselves are incomprehensible. They don't make sense. They're just bad. They're poorly designed plays. I put them on film review. You can see them on YouTube. They just don't even make sense. It's not the right way to run them. We've run them multiple times a game now, almost all season long. And it's a horrific EV play. Let's fix it. And I give an example on the YouTube channel of what you could do to run that instead. If you wanted to run that look, there's times you could do it. That play just has to go. It's it's hurting Florida on first and second down. It makes no sense to keep running those plays. There are much better plays you want to run if you want to run a quick game. Let's do that. And then let's start throwing the ball to our running backs. The Mm. good news is in this game, we've talked about this. Our running backs have almost always been check down machines but not in this game. In this game, you had Montreal run a slant and go and destroy a linebacker on what would have been a 50 or 60 yard touchdown. But instead you had AR looking at Frazier's. And then you also had ETN on a wheel route, destroy a linebacker. It would have been a 40 yard touchdown where AR is looking at him. He gets some pressure rather than staying on him and sliding in the pocket. He comes off him, does a check down on a mesh crosser. Uh, but Florida's putting that stuff on film. And again, the coaches watch film, especially this staff. They are going to start seeing, oh, Montreal, if you're going to kill a guy on a slant and go like that, I'm going to have AR look at you the next time we get you on a linebacker. That's what happens when you put that stuff on film. And Florida's running backs are doing that. They're super dynamic. That's going to add a big element to Florida's offense. If now you can run 11 personnel, that's why the NFL loves to run 11 personnel, go empty, and now you're going to get you know an inside linebacker potentially matched up on your running back who's a better athlete. That's that's dangerous. For sure. That feels like this entire untapped 
potential area. We've talked about we don't use our running backs in that way. Yes, maybe just hadn't gotten to that part of the install, or maybe they're just leaning into it more now, but I would love to see that. It feels like something that this offense could sorely use, especially with our lack of dynamism at receiver at times. So um, it feels like that would have been like one of the first things that I would have put in. You know, again, I'm not, I've never installed an offense. So interesting to see that that was happening more. We'll see about the future. Well, yeah. And the last thing I think here, um, as far as the future goes as well, is with regards to running 11 personnel, play calling, play design, aggressiveness versus passiveness, just kind of overall offensive management. I think Florida is in a situation for these remaining games where they are going to be favored in probably every game. Florida State's going to be close. Yeah, we'll see. That's going to be a coin flip. Uh, But I want to see this continue. That's the change I'd like to see. I I, I want to see that. We saw this in Tennessee. It was a flash of greatness. Not to the same degree. We didn't have this kind of stuff going on. But I want to see this continue more than just one game. I want to see this happen this weekend very, very badly. So this offense can take a step forward and begin to kind of get a little bit of an identity as this season ends. And to your point of the install, at this point in time, all this stuff should be installed. But one thing we also saw as a closing note, which we've been begging for, are some RPOs. Florida ran about three RPOs in this game. And it's criminal that Florida's not going to run more RPO-type stuff. It's easier to run RPO at 11 personnel. You can do a lot more with it. And Napier was very successful out of 11 with his pre-snap motions. Really confused AM, led to good matchup. So I'm cautiously optimistic and excited to see what Florida is going to do this weekend, more so than I've been all season long. That's how I want to relay that to all of you out there. I obviously last week was giving some big statements like, hey, look, this passing game is not to my liking. It's not to most people's likings. It's very frustrating. And now I'm saying there's a lot of hope here, but this next game is going to really dictate where do we go with this? Do we build on this? Do we get better? Do we have better stuff? Or do we just go back into our shell and kind of start doing the same thing? Uh, Florida had more success sending two receivers out in this game we've had all season long. And again, that's largely because AM was fooled when we did that. Teams have not been fooled out of 12 personnel when we've tried to hit them deep. We finally were fooling them. We still aren't hitting a deep pass. We're not going to hit a single deep pass all year long out of a two route combo until we start hitting intermediate passes and shallow passes. No one is going to give us that. You're going to have to earn that by them covering those those intermediate routes. So let's see if Florida's offense can take a step forward with the things they didn't do well last week and do them well this week. Yes, interesting day from the offense, but man, I'm fascinated by this next segment. We're going to talk about the defense, right? I'm going to read you some numbers, and they're going to be kind of wild. And then we're going to talk about first half versus second half. Okay, Florida's defense. 4 of 13 on third down. We already mentioned that. 0 of 1 on fourth down for AM. They do get 413 yards, 279 passing, 134 running. They have two fumbles, three punts. There's two sacks. Um, there's eight stops in a row in the second half. So Haynes King, who we talked about being kind of limited, um, has a decent day, 23 of 45 for 279, one TD, but that really only translates to a 37.8 QBR. Evan Stewart who looked like the top recruit he was, eight receptions, 120 yards, and Devin A. Chain, 16 carries, 122 yards, two TDs. Almost all of that is in the first half. Okay, I'm going to read you some numbers here, James. So 20 point, 24 points in the first half, 
zero in the second. 24 is funny here because that's that's A&M's number. That, that stat had been thrown around a lot. They had not scored more than 24 points against a Power 5 opponent until last week against LSU where they got, only got to 28. So when they were at 24 points in the first half, it's like we've just given them their season average or their season high in the first half. What are we doing? 9.3 yards per play in the first half. That goes down to 2.9 yards per play in the second half. That feels like what happened? Like, did we just magically import a bunch of new players? Do we totally change up what we're doing? I kind of know the answer here. I'm just going to, but I'm going to ask it broadly. What happened in the second half defensively? All right, well, let's just kind of do like a little CSI GNFP here okay. and go through each item. All right. So a common thought was pressure. People were texting me and asking me, do we pressure more? Well, our pressure rate for the game was 26%. In the first half, that was 5 of 19 snaps. In the second half, it was 7 of 26 snaps we brought pressure. That is the exact same rate in the first half and the second half. But here's why it felt like there were more in the second half. We had three actual pressures from our pressure in the first half. So three generated. That is it. We were not getting there. We had 13 QB pressures in the second half. Yes. And so nothing actually changed schematically. We twisted maybe once or twice. We did the typical stuff, right? Simulated pressure, creeper, all the stuff we always do, we did it. But it got home significantly in the second half. Now, whether that's due to the fact that Cox is not there anymore and you know, we had, we played, we did play, we'll talk about something. I'll save that for a second. Something next we'll CSI, but whether or not that's due to X, Y, Z, the reality is it wasn't due to us bringing more bodies. So first checkbox is it was not because we actually brought more blitzes. That's not what happened. We did get to the quarterback more. Now let's go to the next step. All right. Well, was it because we played more down linemen? Typically, on average, Florida plays fewer than eight snaps per game with four down linemen, something you and I have been sort of begging for for a while is to play more snaps than this kind of 4-2-5 defense. Florida played 12 snaps that way. They did play those snaps quite a bit on obvious running downs and even on third down. I thought Florida was more successful in those snaps. But there was no smoking gun of that leading to more QB pressures, per se. So that's not explaining the pressure dynamic either. However, in the second half, AM was one for seven versus that look. One for seven passing. Uber successful. All right, so still not explain the pressure. Well, what about man defense, we say? Maybe pressuring was random. We got pressure. Was it man defense? We played 11 of 19 snaps in the first half in man. We played 10 of 26 in the second half. So we played a lot of man in this game. We played more man in this game than we typically do by a decent amount. However, we actually played fewer snaps of man in the second half. Now, some of that has to do with the fact that the last drive or two yeah. were in zone, but it was about equal is what I want to tell you. Same man right in the first half versus the same man right in the second half. We did employ cover two man, which is what we had called for. We said, look, for whatever reason, AM is weak versus cover two man. And they were weak in this game. They went two for seven. So Florida played a decent amount of their snaps in cover two man. In the second half, they played half their snaps in cover two man. They did in the first half. So again, split equally. We said to play cover six. Florida played five snaps in cover six. Half the third downs were in those. Equally split between first and second half. So the reality is there is no smoking gun here. Florida was just more successful in the second half doing similar things they did in the first half. That's the bottom line. 
That's not a fun answer. It's not what we wanted to hear. Kind of people really wanted some special thing to happen. The coaches said so after the game. They literally said, we didn't really make any adjustments. The one thing we did see was more of my guy, Perkins. Yep. But he still split time with Chavez. It wasn't like he played every single drive. He played more. We got more of him. But that's not enough to explain Florida's success in the second half. So the reality is, I don't have some great line as to what the coaches did that was brilliant other than Florida just played a lot better and they were helped by A&M and Haynes King's inaccuracy a little bit in that second half, but they just generally played a better half of football execution wise than they did in the first half. And that is what led to the difference. So there you have it. Yeah. And, and some of those stops, I mean, you did a good job of showing them even just in the Twitter clips, um, guys open inaccurate ball. The ball hits the referee one. He's not looking maybe where he, theoretically could have been looking on a third down. So certainly um, there were more plays for A&M to make. Um, So the pressure getting home is really interesting, right? So if you're going to get pressure from your four rushers, whether you're you're their three down linemen or not, or four down linemen, that's going to show up in the stat sheet for sure. Like if you're getting actual pressure on the quarterback, you're going to keep them from completing things they want to. You're going to get sacks. You're going to get fumbles, turnovers, whatever it might be. Um, and so that's the really interesting there thing there. Um, the, that number that the pressure actually affected them, it got home. Um, and I, I don't know. I don't know what to think about that considering Britton Cox was not in this game. So when you looked at there, we, do you think they missed Cox at all? Was there any moments where you're like, man, that would be nice to have Brandon Cox on that play? In this particular game, there's many moments where Cox probably beats somebody one-on-one and gets more into the backfield. Uh, but but no, as a unit, obviously, Florida had its best game as a defense all year long. We got eight stops in a row in the second half. That's unreal. That almost never happens against anyone. Uh, now, AM's offense is not, not good. good. Historically, So not. let's make sure that we keep emphasizing that. But Florida's defense is historically bad as well and they were historically bad in the first half you're gonna miss cox on the field all year long individual playmaker wise but let me just tell you this any of you have played team sports you know the difference between a band of brothers who like each other care about each other play for each other grow together support each other versus a scenario where one guy maybe is playing for himself i don't know that cox is doing that or was doing that. I can't say that. The only thing I can do to speculate is this unit got better as the game went on, especially as a defensive unit, defensive line. It is possible that you have addition by subtraction, which we talked about last week, culture, brotherhood, confidence, understanding, unity, that maybe you didn't have before. It was clearly well known that Cox was frustrated with his own teammates during multiple of these plays largely because I think he wanted to win, not necessarily because he was trying to belittle his teammates. But either way, Alan, it's unknowable. But certainly on film, no player in a football game, especially a defensive lineman, is so impactful that he's going to matter significantly in every game. But a guy like Cox would matter a lot against the best teams. And we saw that you know, throughout his kind of career. Is like When he played the best players, he was capable of winning one-on-one battles when other guys were not. A&M's team right now is not a team that maybe would expose something like that. But I think we can be happy to report on film that obviously Florida's defense had its best second half of the season 
without its best player on film to date. So that's very positive, no matter how you want to look at it. We will see what happens for the rest of the year with obviously it looks like Ryland Powell Jr. being the one they want to have. Yeah, and he was the guy. And he kind of took that role for most of the game. And he had the most snaps coming into this behind Cox. He was the guy, obviously, they were going to put in there um, unless they decided they were going to trot somebody else in there. But uh, this is really interesting to me. The question that I really want to address here is like, basically, is this defensive effort repeatable? You know, they still had a chance to complete some long conversions. I mentioned that. Um, and they did do some things differently. There's a clip that you, from, if you want to, I keep referencing the Twitter clips here. But <laughs> the excitement level over, they played four down linemen. They're in man. They sent a fifth rusher. That's a fairly common defensive organizational <laughs> tactic. But it was rare enough that it, Produced a lot of excitement from you on the clip. Uh, made me laugh. So, you know, a few different players, a few different alignments. Again, there was nothing dramatically different. But not that they're going to get eight stops in a row. But is is do you feel like this de- defensive effort is repeatable? It's hard to know because a lot of it was self-inflicted by A&M to a certain degree. But a lot of it was the pressure rate that Florida had. I mean, getting four times the pressure rate that you got in the first half is a recipe for success without a doubt. So that helps. But on film, there were still plenty of chances for A&M to convert, even third and tens, right? And Florida is like allergic to covering hitch routes. Literally every team knows just run hitches. And Florida just gives it to you. Just give it to you. And King just couldn't make the throws. If he does... What we're talking about are three or four more third and seven or longer conversions on this Florida defense. And there's a third and long where he throws the opposite side of the field. But if you see Jason Marshall dropping into cover three, the guy's just turning. I mean, he's wide he's open. He's wide for open. Yards. He's wide open. And so it's like, you know, better teams will hit that. Better teams did hit that, right? AM didn't hit that. That's why they're a bad offense. So it's not like on film you saw perfection. You did see some better stuff on film, which I highlighted. You saw plays where only one guy was moderately open. That's big improvement from what we've seen. But in general, I'm going to say let's hope this helps these guys kind of gel some, build some. We saw some schematic stuff that wasn't as bad as what we've seen in the past, right? We weren't as far off. We weren't playing some of the stuff we've done before, which we highlight against Georgia. That's just, to me, is so nonsensical with trying to rotate a safety here and kind of rotate a corner back, but we're late. We're not there fast enough. We don't play with conviction. So the idea may be sound, but we never execute it well. So this goes back to what we said, Alan. A lot of Tony's ideas are very football sound. I could be on board with them. But Florida is so bad at executing them. We raised the question earlier on. At what point in time do you just say, I, I have to win right now? I can't just keep building for the future with some guys who aren't even going to be here, right? If this defense just is not capable of doing it, I have to win a football game. So I do think that Florida playing, again, a little bit more man than we played before, I thought that was our better defense. And why? we weren't doing the things we do so poorly, which is switch off defenders, even pre-snap, right? Their touchdown, several of their early touchdowns of big plays were just due to guys guarding the same guy and leaving guy wide open, which you've seen Florida do all season long. Not exactly super complicated stuff, 
but it happens a lot. So simplify the game, make it easy, bring pressure, especially against inaccurate quarterbacks. So Florida could have done a lot more of it. And I think they would have been even more successful. So I'm not ready to say, let's turn the page. This defense has got only good things in front of it. There are still a lot of questions about both scheme and personnel that are not going to get answered, in my opinion, until we get all the way through year two. So I keep trying to caution people. You really have to be patient. The head coach gets a three-year test unless the wheels completely fall off, which that's not happening right now. And the defensive coordinator should theoretically get a two-year test and a rebuild, right? And that's what we're saying. Same thing with Grantham, same thing with all these other guys. You got to give them two full years. You got to see what's happening. So Tony's not doing idiotic stuff on defense. That's not really what's happening. But a lot of times it's questionable. At times it's not executed correctly. At times it's outright wrong. But a lot of times it's fine and it's even good. And we don't execute or the players aren't capable of making it happen. So we just have to wait and see. And we have to wait and see game to game what this Florida football team brings us on both offense and defense. And so do not turn the page and think we've figured it out. I think this will be a whole new week to see what exactly this Florida defense brings us. Yeah, and unfortunately for Tony's testing the limits of people's patience even in year one which you don't want to see that happen. All right, change you'd like to see. I, I know one that you would like to see that's probably been on here every week for two years. Trey Dean being benched, or do you mean the other one? The other one. Which, of course, yes, I have actually listed here. Trey Dean himself played another relatively quiet and solid game. So that's two in a row there you for go. him. So I still would rather see Kamari there, but you know what? Credit where credit's due. He's playing better all of a sudden. Two games in a row. Let's see if we can make it three. But obviously, this is, yeah, to your point, felt so obvious for so long. How we don't have Perkins playing over Trevez really is blowing my mind still to this point. Again, that that causes me to ding Tony as a DC because the film is blatantly clear that Perkins gives you tremendous upside on anything related to pass coverage. I mean, it's it's a night and day difference. And also, he's way more aggressive playing against the run and perhaps sometimes he's not sure what he's doing, but Florida played several third down man snaps with Trevez in and teams just go after Trevez. They throw the ball right at him. He had decent coverage on several of those plays that got converted, but with Perkins, they don't do that. They don't look at Perkins. They want to throw at this guy. I mean, Perkins is a, is a ball hawk. So I don't, I don't really understand how if it's third and 10 and I'm a DC and I'm going to play man. And I know I'm playing man. I'm going to put Trevez in there over Perkins. I don't get it. So we need to see more Perkins. That's something that I think is is a layup. It's obvious it should be done. We want to see more forward down lineman looks. I mean, I love that we saw some of it. That was great. So let's, let's talk, see some more. Let's talk through this. I think just an answer. I think I'm hearing the question in my head of people listening is like, why are four down linemen better or even different than like three down linemen and a rusher who's always rushing? Well, it's definitely not necessarily better, right? Sure. It all comes down to personnel, and it comes down to what you have said for years as you've followed this football team. Florida has recruited a bunch of undersized, non-position-specific defenders, period. The 3-4, in my opinion, requires a more specific skill set to make that defense work. And if you have it all right, it's a phenomenal defense. It always has been. The reason so many NFL teams have gone away from running a 3-4 defense or at least a 3-4 all the time, most teams nowadays will be hybrid, they'll run multiple, is because it's so difficult to find three defensive linemen that can anchor that and then four linebackers to go along with it, Alan, who are good enough to do all the things that defense requires. A 3-4 is much better, in my opinion, as a change of pace defense 
four down linemen are a lot easier to find. Here's the reason why. You can get two defensive tackles, two big, strong defensive tackles. You can play a one-gap or a two-gap system uh, where you're going to play. The gap in front of you could be just one or two. You could read or not read, right? College, a lot of times, it's one gap. NFL, it's two gap. If that means nothing to you, don't worry about it because what really matters here is when you have four down linemen, you're getting better leverage at the line of scrimmage. Step one, it's much easier for your linebackers because now you don't need four linebackers. You often need two or three. And of those three, only two have to be run stoppers. So you're eliminating the problem where you're going to play an undersized at Florida, an undersized 3-4 linebacker on the line of scrimmage who's standing up. And if teams run the ball, he's often going against like a left tackle. He's getting blown out of the play before it even starts, right? Whereas if you can put a bigger body in there, you had Dexter, you had Big Dez as your two defensive tackles playing interior tackle. Now no longer is Dexter supposed to be pass rushing. He's not a pass rusher. He's a 4-3 defensive tackle right? Now you're going to do better job controlling the inside middle of that field. And you're going to have two guys on the edge who right now Florida can't even do this. They're still way undersized, especially with Cox gone, but at least you have two defensive tackles covering the interior part instead of one and then two linebackers, which we know Florida's got major linebacker issues. So I think what it does is it trades. It helps mask, in my opinion, Florida's linebacker problems, which we have talked about from the beginning when we said Grantham was going to go to a three, four, it was like, why? We don't have that kind of personnel. And he never recruited for it. So anyway, I think for this team, this running a 4-3 or a 4-2-5 or whatever is is good to do and mix in the 3-4 when there's moments when it makes sense. But as a base defense, I think it's failed us for a long time now, including under Grantham. We kept harping on this stuff. Um, so generally, it's better gap control. It's more beef up front. And it suits Florida. Florida has two what I think are great defensive tackles and a third one budding in McClellan. If you're rotating Dexter, Big Dez, and McClellan through those traditional, and Sap's good too, through those D-tackle spots, that's a really good interior in the SEC. It's a really good interior. For Instead, sure. we're going to go one at a time. So Big Dez is the defensive tackle. Then you got Dexter at end. He's not He's not a rush end. In yeah, and four. these guys like Sap, who you, if you put him at an interior spot and allow him to rush from the interior, theoretically, that's a position you could really... Yeah you know, thrive in asking him to play that three, four end where he's kind of, I don't know. He can do it. I'm sure. But yeah, it just seems like it lines up better. It lines at up least better superficially. For and they can't always do. double team. Like the thing is they're going to double team your nose tackle every time. But what's actually been happening. People keep asking this like Dexter's disappearing. That's largely because big Des as big as he is. And much as I like him, teams don't have to double big Des. A lot of times they'll take him one-on-one and they'll double Dexter because Dexter's in my opinion, a better player right now. I think Des has a really high ceiling. But that means you have a defensive end who's getting doubled in the run game, like every single play. For the 3-4 to work, you you basically have to have your nose tackle get doubled every play. It's built upon that. And he's supposed to be strong enough to kind of anchor himself in the gap. If that's not happening, you're playing kind of with one arm tied behind your back with undersized linebackers that can't read the field. So I think it does help Florida. It will help Florida. It surprised me. Tony was a multiple guy. He was a multiple defensive guy. It surprised me that basically this is the first game we really saw Florida kind of use this. It wasn't a base package, but it was close. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that they now don't feel like they have this superstar in Cox, who's such a good matchup player. that They want to move him around and kind of let him be a free-flowing athlete. They played more of a team-oriented front seven, which I think would have suited Florida better from the beginning. Okay. Thanks for that little... Change it there. I think you described that well. Yeah, and again, not that three four or four three is in, inherently better. It's what suits your personnel and what your opponents maybe like to do as well. All right. Uh, anything else? Now, lastly, let's just lean into tactical play. That's something we saw a little bit of in this game. 
Um, you know, we talked about it. We're going to talk about it with how Georgia played Tennessee. This staff needs to get more tactical to who they're playing rather than so strategic with what is their what their own team is doing. Like this is the SEC. This is not the Sun Belt. You can't just focus on yourself. You need to tactically apply what you're going to do to your opponent. You cannot just keep lining up and doing what you do, especially with the state of this defense. Really take advantage of your opponent's weaknesses as we finish out this season. All right, you want to talk about special teams here? Let's do it. Adam Mahalik, 2-3, had a long 50 yards, did miss a, I was at a 15-yarder. I don't know, something super short there. That was frustrating uh, in the game position. Felt like it prolonged the game there. Um, Crawshaw, three punts, average 44.7, long of 47. Here's a note I want to make. Um, Henderson, I finally got why. It maybe just struck me. This is maybe an, an obvious thing. But it feels like he lacks the acceleration I would want in a really dynamic player that you would put as a punt returner. Like his top end speed is really fine. But going from stop to start is not sudden enough to really threaten you as a punt returner. And it's not really great as the, the way we're using him as an outside receiver, catching some of these screens or stuff like that. He can be very effective in a lot of ways. But uh, the way they're deploying him feels like they're leaving stuff on the table that another player could do better. So yeah, especially as a punt returner, it just feels like that's not what I would want from him. I mean, we've talked about this. Totally agree. I do think Henderson's budding into a very productive receiver right now. Uh, he's two games in a row. Now he's been getting open. AR is developing a nice chemistry with him, but he's not the kind of guy who has, and obviously you know who has it again is, is ETN. That's the guy who has the quick shifty burst. You need multiple of those guys, but ETM would theoretically also be a great punt returner as far as once he catches the football because he is so quick in little spaces. He can get skinny. He can get small. He uses blocks really well. Uh, that's a guy that would be tremendous in that spot. But I think Florida just lacks those kind of guys, which we've talked about. And Henderson sort of, it's like a, well, he's there, catches the football. Yeah, there's uh, not someone I would a, like. It's a floor level scenario. But to right. your point, correct. This is, he's not... He's not a he's not the right fit. He's not the right mold for a punt returner. Definitely not. Okay. Coaching decisions. You want to walk us through these? Let's do it. First one up, Alan. I want to get your reaction here. Mm -hmm. There's a minute left at halftime. We've already talked about it. We saved it for this moment. Here we are. A minute left. Florida gets the ball. False start. A lot of false starts in this game. We didn't talk about them until right now. Florida regressed penalty wise. Just had trouble getting on the same page in the snap count. They largely overcame it, but a lot of them. And they blow the play. They just mess it up. They they run a, a running play that's not a running play, and things right. are jacked up. Uh, so it's you know 54 seconds left. Florida has all three timeouts left. And again, they have 17 points at this point in time, um, or 20 points, rather, sorry, at this point in time. They've scored almost on every single drive. They've not even had really a single moment of diciness. Everything's been pretty comfortable. And Napier decides to do what we've seen him do now multiple times this year, which is, all right, yeah, I'm going to shut that junk down which is not what he was doing at Louisiana. Not what he was doing. Shows that junk down. Goes in halftime. He's going to call it what he calls a mayday situation. Same thing again. A&M's going to get the ball in the second half, which I guess for Billy, it's my question to you, essentially means if Florida has the ball with a minute or two left in a half and the team's going to get the ball back at halftime, we're just going to take a knee every time. I mean, what is this? How did you feel about this decision? Yeah, I would almost feel the other way around it. Like, again, there's more danger in that scenario, but there's also more opportunity to like, leverage them like that you're going to score before they score rather than like we're just going to give it up i 
again, all things being equal here, I would like to be more aggressive. And in this scenario, even starting with where we were and some of the bad things that you mentioned already happening, I, I didn't like us being passive in that moment. Felt like we there were yards to be had through the air, and we missed an opportunity there. I don't like I don't like that for our team. I don't like that for Billy. Uh, not that I would never concede something like, "Hey, this is just a bad moment. Things are going bad. Let's just take a knee and get to halftime." I think that can be the right call, but I it wasn't like I was tearing my hair out. But I, I definitely don't like this for the team. No, I'm not a fan at all. I was tearing my hair out. I was super frustrated <laughs> because, again, this is not a scenario where Florida's offense has not been playing well. They've been playing right. super well. You're right. And it's the same thing. If you look on that sideline and you think, hey, what does Jimbo want me to do? He wants you to do that. That's what he wants you to do. He didn't want you to try to score there because you've Absolutely. been driving at will right down his weakened team's throat. And you limp out of there on second down and 10. And I mean, it, it sends all the wrong messaging to the football team, in my opinion, for a guy, again, who's scared money. Don't make money. There's a lot of scared money at the end of these halves and one minute of football time with three timeouts, Allen is an eternity. Yeah, especially for a guy who just hit you a 50 yard field goal. Yes. It's also very valuable. And here's a simple litmus test. I watch a ridiculous amount of the NFL every week. I have three TVs on my wall. I have the red zone channel. I love watching NFL. It's the highest one of football. You will almost never, never under any circumstance, find a single time where an NFL team with a minute left, is not attempting to try to score at some way, shape, or form at the end of the first half. It is ludicrous to not do that. That is one minute of football time that's just as valuable as the next. And this sort of mythical, like, well, it's the end of the half, they get the ball back next, is insane. It doesn't make any sense when your offense is playing well. Again, it's one thing if their offense is unstoppable and your offense sucks and you probably want to get to the half, right? But you know what else happened? A&M didn't call any timeouts. They had two of them. They didn't call a single one. Why? What does that tell you, Alan? They They didn't want you to be going for it anyway. Total misapplication there of game theory. Yet another halftime fail for Billy. For a guy who loves stats and analytics, I hope he spends a long, hard look this offseason at how to handle these first half situations because it just doesn't make any sense. In regular football, if we eliminate that one-minute drive and say there's two minutes left and there's no halftime, A&M gets the ball next anyway. Would you not try and score because A&M gets the ball next? Who cares? Take your minute, try to score. If we're so afraid that we can't get a first down or there's going to be 20 seconds left and they're going to score a touchdown for a full field, what are we even doing? And that's very frustrating. And I think a lot of fans have a right to be frustrated. And if I'm Billy's staff, I'm talking to him about it during the week saying, Billy, we got to clean this up, man. We're missing opportunities to score points in football games. And one minute is a valuable minute. So let's see if we can't fix that at some point in time. Well, second one, second one here. Different scenario. So Florida's up 10 in the fourth quarter. It's fourth down and goal from the two. And we have run a copious amount of 12 personnel and been unable to score. First time we didn't score. Now we're down here again because we missed a field goal. Down here again now for the second time. And Billy chooses to go for this on fourth down and one or two on the goal line. Did you like this or not like this? I did like it because kicking a field goal there doesn't accomplish a ton for you because it only puts you up 13. Whereas a touchdown really is probably a knockout blow and you're close enough that that's reasonable. It's not fourth and 10, obviously it's not reckless. And as you're very fond of saying, it's the rule of scores and I'm sure you'll get to that in a second, but yes, I, we end up, you know, botching it horribly, 
but I do like the overall meta decision to go for it. And I would like, I would want us to do it again. I loved it. This is the right move. This is the rule of scores. Billy got this one right for sure. Again, a field goal, which you mentioned, does not put you up more than two scores. Yes, they have to get another field goal, but the reality is you'd rather put them out of the game. The EV of going for it on an opponent's two-yard line is positive in your favor. You are more likely to score than they are on the next drive. So everything about this screams, knock them out of the game and go for it. What I hated was the play call. Yeah. Ridiculously trashy play call. He made a lot of good play calls in this game. That was not one of them. Again, you stayed in 12 personnel. You bunched the entire field up. Like the total opposite of what was working is what you did. And A&M, a team that had been dying on the hill to stop your inside run, obliterated your inside run game. Obliterated it. They sent everyone. And good for A&M. And they must have been thinking, there's no way Florida's going to do this. This is what we want Florida to do. And Florida did it. So again, opportunities for Billy to get better. One thing that should be noted is, of course, on this podcast, we're always going to be really praiseworthy of things that are great and really critical of things that can get better because we would do that to ourselves. It's not like, wow, the coaching staff are stupid. I mean, if if you and I were coaching Alan, we'd make mistakes every single week because we're sure. humans. We have to go back and say, let's try not to make that same mistake again. Let's see if we can't clean this stuff up, play calling and otherwise. That's just humanity. It's totally fine. Uh, I think get a, you got to think of Billy as like a rookie playing in the major leagues for the first time. Yes, he's coached on staffs and done stuff, but this is kind of his rookie year. He's going to feel things out and learn things. And like we said before, He's going to take a good hard look at this season after the season and find ways to improve his own game as a coach. And I, f- I firmly believe he will do that. Yeah. And I would rather people be getting right the meta strategy and cleaned up like the play call rather than you're calling right plays, but in very wrong situations. So I'm glad that they went for it there. Okay. A few final thoughts. You know, someone mentioned this somewhere along the way. I don't know where it was, where if you basically start looking at Anthony Richardson, LSU game and beyond, it's a very functional player. Even against a team like Georgia, who we just saw like wreck Hendon Hooker's world, the offense as a whole didn't perform. Richardson didn't play well, especially in the first half. But numbers-wise, he's been very effective, hasn't turned the ball over. He's played pretty well. And... Yeah, if you, especially if you take away the Kentucky game, which was now thankfully looking like just the very bottom outlier of how he might play in a game. You know, it, that, which just threw people off, threw us off too. He's played pretty well recently, and if he can continue to build on that and play even better, I think Florida is going to be you know, very effective in offense the rest of the season. Now, that's not a guarantee he will do that, but his recent set of games has been really positive. Yeah, I love those thoughts. I have nothing to add because that's totally true. He's playing well. He's missing things that someone at his stage should miss. I want to keep emphasizing that. I really dislike the narrative that's out there about treating this guy like he's Kyle Trask, which he's not. Trask also had been a backup for years and years and years, was a much older guy. He's not an NFL quarterback yet, right? He's not Bryce Young. Bryce Young was a guy who was much more polished coming out. He is who he is. What matters, and we always say this, what matters is progress. The reason on this podcast we've been frustrated with guys like Felipe Franks, right? If you're wondering, well, wait a minute, James, you're harsh on a lot of these guys. I don't view that as harsh. I view it as repeated mistakes. If AR gets stuck in this tranche and he does not improve these things we talk about, eventually you got to say, look, the guy's, he's stuck, right? Emory Jones just got benched by Arizona State again. He's not a starting quarterback. We said that. We're not trying to be mean to Emory Jones. He's a really nice guy. But his game suggested, Alan, that he could not get out of this stuck 
level he was at. He that was the no level of quarterback progress. he was. Correct. So it frustrates me when people like they they kind of like put all this stuff in a pot and mix it together and they don't really get it. That you look at where the guy started, you look at what he's capable of, and you kind of see if he begins to progress. AR is probably right where most guys should be with where he started and where he's going. And he's going to have ups and downs. And we've said that. He had a lower four than we thought he had because of the confidence stuff. But look, you know what we haven't had to talk about, Alan? It's AR's confidence. That's a great That's point. a great sign. We thought that might have been a big storyline. We have not had to bring that up, which tells you he's got some toughness. He's got some grit. So there's a lot of progression going on here. It would be very helpful if Florida fans would stop criticizing AR as though he was, you know, pick your favorite NFL quarterback. He's not that guy yet. Right. So this is, I think, partially it's their fault. Certainly it's also partially the narrative about him, the hype about him, how he played in Utah, and then how badly he played against Kentucky is left him exposed to a lot of that. I think if there's no narrative about an NFL draft pick, if he doesn't have that Kentucky performance, he's probably in roughly in line with people, what they would hope for. And I'll always be some very critical people. But circumstantially, it's created that. But I would agree that people need to step back and look at where he's at big picture and how he's progressing. Absolutely. And again, we'll be probably hopefully more film critical of AR than anyone else would be because that's what we're doing every single week. But also, I think there's so many positives to be happy for. And just keep in mind, I'm not going to spoil your next point. Keep in mind what Florida's expectation was from Vegas this season with a win total, what the expectation was from everyone else that was not a Florida fan for Florida's win season this year, what they had last year as a win total, and begin to think of where Florida is sitting at five and four right now with some really high highs. Some low lows, a really hard schedule. A lot of this stuff, Alan, is in the very realm of acceptability with the defense notwithstanding, which we've been very hard on the defense for good reason. The numbers the defense have put out there are not acceptable, not allowed, way beneath what we should have gotten out of. But the rest of this stuff largely is well within the realm of what what, what should have been expected. So winning cures a lot, right? I think everyone feels a lot better this week because of the W. And... This team, we said it last week, with this win, now there's a very clear path to eight and four. And that'd be huge, right? We both predicted nine and three, which, you know, it's going to be funny if this team gets eight and four, you just swap that Kentucky result and they're at nine and three. Now it's not gone the way people would have expected. And it's been a little wider variance in terms of performance. And you got smashed by Georgia and things like that. But eight and four, I think everyone would take right now. Because that would mean you picked up some nice wins in the middle of the season. You close with a win against FSU. Everyone's kind of riding high. It doesn't have to end that way for this to be an okay season and not a disaster. So we're not basically being like great or awful. But I think, as you said, just a little bit more tactical. Let's win this game. Let's finish out 8-4. and four. I think that'd be meaningful for the team and for Gator Nation. And it's in, you can see it. And so there's an opportunity to go and get it. Eight and four would be massive. That's the win total before the season that that I thought would have been a good season. And then we somehow picked more. Yeah. Uh, right. But regardless, that's the number that I thought would have been successful. That'd be great. And now it's right in front of Florida. Florida State's getting better and better every single week. They're a real football team. It's going to be a real test for them. Uh, Florida's a big favorite this week. They're going to be a really big favorite next week. And again, I think they're probably going to be a favorite over Florida State if we win these two football games. So it's safe to say, at the very least, certainly within the realm of possibility for Florida to win these games. Uh, but to get an eight and four, it's the Tennessee narrative, especially if Florida's style improves, where you you have a really choppy first half last year. 
You close strong, get to a bowl game, perhaps get to nine and four. How do you feel then? Feel pretty good. Recruiting comes together, top 10 class, maybe even a top six, seven class. Narrative is very different. So you have to let these stories finish out. I think it's really important as fans and supporters of the program, when you watch a movie, if you stop a movie in the middle at the most dramatic, climactic, tension-filled point, you often get the very wrong ending for what's going to happen, right? That's kind of what Florida fans do halfway through a football season. You need to play an entire season for a reason. You need to see what the entire season looks like. And so we're going to find out what that season looks like. We have some very important games here down the home stretch yeah, that can Florida, really change how people feel about Florida entirely. And if Florida drops two of the last three, it's going to feel different than that, that really nice eight and four. Okay. Coaching corners. What do you got for us? All right. A few good ones here. USC played Cal. It's like two in the morning on you know Saturday night. Um, Cal Feisty makes it 33-41 with two minutes and 31 seconds left. They choose to go for two. They're down 33-41. Extra point puts them down seven. They choose to go for two. The announcers, predictably, are flabbergasted. And they say, quote, analytics cannot possibly support this. This makes no sense to me. Yeah, this is funny. Um, It feels like the announcers know the word analytics, but not what the analytical analytical trends are currently. (laughs) Right? Yeah, that's an obvious one. We've covered that many times before. It it is analytically sound to go for two there. Cal, by the way, got it, 41-35, and then did not get the onside kick and then could not stop USC. Yeah, I think for some of these older guys, analytics just means stuff I don't understand. I think that's right. And it was just, I thought it was really humorous, though, that like (laughs) analytics can't possibly support this. Actually, 100% support, so that's why they're doing it. And again, if you're new to the program there, the reason you do that is if you get that, then you are down six. First of all, Cal knows they have to score twice. They have to score twice and they have to stop USC from scoring or the game is automatically over anyway. So if you go for two, you don't get it the first time, you get a chance a second time. You can start doing the math on this. You need to get it one time. But if you get it first, like Cal got it, it gives you a chance to win the game outright. You put a lot of game pressure on your opponent. So it makes mathematical sense to win. You win more often if you do it that way. So analytics does support that. All right. I saw one of the best things of the weekend on a Mississippi State onside kick. That Auburn game was a wild game. A lot of people probably did not watch it. It was occurring during a bunch of other good games, especially Alabama LSU. But with the game tied and not a lot of time left, Mississippi State hammers, and I mean drills, a line drive kick right into one of the upmen on purpose. It hits them and they recover it. It's a brilliant idea, Alan. I can't believe I have not seen people do this before with more frequency in these situations because if he misses, no big deal. They're kicking off anyway, and it's going to wind up going to overtime. But if he hits him, which he did, they gave themselves a chance to try, which they ultimately failed, to try to win the game in regulation kind of for free with very little risk, but it was a laser of a strike. Totally surprised the up, man. If you haven't seen it, Google it. But I loved that. It's that really was fun. Really good stuff I, by Leach. I've, I think I've seen someone kick at a person, but not in that particular scenario. Yeah, I'm on my you know off the cuff here. I can't really think of a downside. No, it's great. It was. I mean, I guess it could like fly off of them and they get the ball on your side. But really good <laughs> right. stuff there. Right. Your Jags. Yeah. This one brought to us by Daniel Gray. Your Jags versus the Raiders. The Raiders have now, by the way, Allen blown three. Count them three. Seventeen point leads in the NFL this season. Three. That's a lot. In the history of the Raiders franchise. This is an amazing stat, by the way. They've blown five 17-point leads 
in the first half of a football season. So if you go back all the first halves they've ever played, eight games through, five, three, <laughs> the first half. Anyway, your Jags were the most recent uh, victors of this. So it's third down for the Jags, and the Jags hold on the play, but the Raiders decline it. So Jacksonville winds up with a fourth and one with a 41-yard field goal. Your Jaguars are up 24 to 10. So if you're the Raiders, you decline a penalty. 24-20, I think. 24-20, sorry. Uh, if you're the Raiders, you decline a penalty, allowing the Jags to take a field goal, which if they make a 41-yarder, is going to make it 27-20, a one-touchdown game. Or you could take the penalty, make it third down and 11, which if they gain no yards, would make it a 51-yard field goal. At any rate, the Jags miss the field goal. What would you have done here? Would you have declined this penalty in this situation or would you have uh, pushed him back? I don't know. In the moment, I was like, wait, he's declined or he's declining it. Okay. Um, I'm trying to do the math in my head with the time and everything. <laughs> everything was happening too fast. I couldn't figure it out because it just felt weird. Um, I don't know. I, honestly, are you enticing us to kick it? Because you, it doesn't really penalize you. I'm not sure exactly what McDaniels had in mind here what do you think yeah I think he I think he overthought this because again the EV is pretty clear here right a, a third and 11 in the NFL is going to convert at less than 30 percent and then that means that you know that means almost any scenario is better than fourth and one but I think where it gets interesting is a 41 yard field goal versus a 45 yard field goal for NFL kicker is basically the same make rate a 51 yarder is different so now you have to factor in what are the odds on third and 11 that you stop it for nothing that gets trickier right in general but then i think most importantly i think all he did was something much more simple we're down four we have a score touchdown anyway i would rather have them not convert this bleed more time off potentially score a touchdown where i lose the game outright than say you know what worst case scenario i got a score touchdown and i'll be tied which is what i think he did but i think for my players if it's third and 11 in the nfl and i want to get a chance to them not to score i want let's go make a play it's the jags trevor lawrence has made mistakes. This is not, this is not, you know, a veteran team. It's not going to necessarily give you mistakes. So I thought a curious decision there for sure. But I think that was his calculus was I'm only going to be down seven. Anyway, I've scored touchdown. There's not a lot of harm here if they just kick the field goal. All right, Alan patrons, let's go back. We're still, still diving through all the patrons that have ever supported us. And that number thankfully is a decent amount. And we're very thankful for all of you for doing that. All right. Get us started here. Benjamin Stewart, Joe Kahn, Terry Greenberg, Jordan Myers, Patrick the Bunny, Number One Gator, CJ McRae, Jonathan Leonard, James Smith, The More Fam, Tyle Krask, Brandon Davis, Johnny Wishbone, Nick Porterfield, EJ, Christian Wayne, Jonathan Weistel, Justin Widenfield, Derek Newton, John Geiger, Justin Green, MCNK, Brant Fleming, Corey Costello, Joe, Mc- Joe McCann, McCann, excuse me, Stacy. Carl J. King, Bannister Lannister. <laughs> Love it. Bobby Cooper, Fierce Leader 7, Eric Scott. Kevin Conroy Scott, Pete Kelly, Siraj H., Joshua Fowler, Ryan Dickey, Nicholas Dunn, Cody Jordan, Samuel Elliott, Connor McManus, David Lee, Adam White, Jim Desario, David Dupius. Dupuy, probably. Or it could be Dupuy. Every time I just read it like an American, <laughs> like a good old English speaking American. Uh, Chris, Derek Taylor, 
Constantine. I'm gonna let you say this last one then, since you. Nah, this go, is, he please. just goes by Constantine. Constantine hats of Velasilu, but it's like hats. No, you just you hats just feel that one. I know you might as well try though, right? Give, you give it an effort then. Nah, we'll just go on. No, no, go one. ahead, go ahead. Hatsi Vasiliu. I like that. That's much better than mine, though. See, Alan really has this pronunciation stuff down. Constantine, we're sorry. Feel free to send us the phonetic spelling, and uh, we'll get it done for you. Kyle Moyles, Jack Zaludos. Zoldos. Or Zoldos. Just looks you like. just like to add in and take a I letters. just like to add add things to it. Yeah. <laughs> John right. Scott. We do this every week so I can read the name so Alan can then like stare at them <laughs> and think, no, I would say it this way. And really, it's it's great. I mean, I enjoy that. I love it. Okay. I was really hopeful for the week 10 slate and I got murdered going four and nine. You did a little bit better there going six and seven. I'm not going to read out what the season totals are anymore. Okay. Just kidding. I'm, I, only, yeah, please I, do I'm at 60 and 68. <laughs> you're still right there. I know. And you're at 64 and 64. So good job. Been a you. tough year this year. Typically by this time we start to go, you were way positive last year at this point, but typically we start to churn up a positive. And this is here. the point where I would say I'm not a professional odds picker. So there we yeah, go. But we're actually doing all right. 50, 50 versus spread is, uh, is not bad. All right. That Friday night game, Oregon State at Washington. Washington wins 21-24. They don't quite cover, so good job by you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, uh, you know, unfortunately, Oregon State lets down my boy Parker and his family. They don't get the win, but uh, they do get me the points, so I'm happy. There you go. <laughs> Unranked Kentucky at Missouri. This is a wild finish. Kentucky wins 21-17. If you haven't seen the muffed punt turned roughing the punter call it's kind of wild i would have lost my mind like eli drinkowitz did and i would still be upset about it if i'm missouri what a brutal way to not get the ball back to get a chance to win this football game but yeah we thought this game would be close and competitive that's a good win for kentucky i really thought missouri was going to win this one so did you and they did not okay we have to maybe jump off the Okie State bandwagon. I'm way off of it. I am so far. I don't know what happened to them. They get waxed in the state of Kansas for a second week in a row. Kansas, good win for them, 37-16. to 16. Incredible season from Kansas. And Oklahoma State's had a lot of injuries, but wow, did the wheels fall off that program this year. Yeah, I mean, they were playing pretty well. They're a top-10 team, and I know they've had some injuries, but something is not right there. All right, Michigan State, who had some players suspended. This is a shocker. Then proceeds to go and, you know, take the shine from Illinois, 23-15. Illinois, what'd you do? It's shocking. Michigan State has been horrific. They come off a week when they're fighting a Michigan player in the tunnel. I mean, just a really tough week for them in general. And they go on the road and beat a good Illinois team. That's a a great result for them. That's a narrative changer, at least for one week until they play again this week. All right, we I feel like we were spiritually right on this and wrong on the result. Texas Tech, TCU, TCU continues to get it done 34-24. Texas Tech was winning for a lot of this game and somehow cover here at the end, but this is a close game most of the time. Yeah, cover by a half point. And Texas Tech we thought would be right there and they were right there, but ultimately they were a half point shy of getting us when we needed. That's why you don't gamble, folks. All right. Baylor yes, gets it done at Oklahoma 38-35. So I think both of these fan bases probably oddly feel okay about this result. Okay about the result. I think either one of them was maybe worried about getting waxed the way things were going, but Baylor's it was competitive been playing better last couple weeks. They have been playing better. It's a good win by them. All right, Liberty beats Arkansas twenty-one to nineteen. We took Liberty to cover. They win outright. 
They were up 14-0. Arkansas tends to fall behind a lot. The wheels have fallen off Arkansas. Mm. I mean, they really started out hot, and they have they have disappeared. They were a top-10 team at some point. It's a great win by Liberty. Again, we thought that they would get inside that number because Liberty's good. And Hugh Freeze, look, continues to get stuff done. Man. The guy, obviously, is a cheater and also a really good coach. And he's I don't know if he's cheating at Liberty. Liberty's a questionable you know, campus themselves. But uh, he's getting some great results there. Doesn't it just seem like a nice marriage here, Auburn and Hugh Freeze. Seems perfect, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean that that's. Seems... <laughs> I don't know. If our, I don't know if Auburn fans feel that way. But... No, I don't know either. But it does feel right on the outside, at least. All right, Wake Forest, man, the Demon Deeks, man, let me down here. They lose to NC State twenty-one to thirty. NC State with the backup quarterback still gets it done. Wake Forest has not played well the last couple weeks. No, Wake Forest, again, kind of uh, just a downward trend here. Not sure what's going on with them, but a uh, good win for NC State. And NC State's a good football team, but but still. <laughs> this is a wild game, and I, I don't know. I still don't know what to think about it. LSU wins 32-31 over Alabama in overtime. They go for two, which people were debating, but I thought that was definitely the right call. And, yeah, big, big, big win for Brian Kelly and LSU. Huge win. And, and we, look, when Brian Kelly got hired, we said that he is going to be the benchmark to compare to Billy. We also said that Brian Kelly is a better football coach than Billy is right now. I mean, that, that, I, I tried my best to say this is a really good football coach. He's got Do 30 years on him or something on like what that. he's done at Notre Dame. This dude was an institution at Notre Dame. He did not have the talent. I don't think anyone on planet Earth felt better than Brian Kelly did after that win against Bama because he left Notre Dame, don't mistake anything about this, for LSU because he wanted to beat Nick Saban and the other teams that have superior talent to him. And what a shot across the bow. He comes out with inferior talent, at least on paper, not by a ton, but by enough, in year one and outfoxes Nick Saban. Nick Saban's got to be beside himself with frustration. I have to imagine Nick Saban is not a guy who wants to lose to Brian Kelly. Brian Kelly started off at LSU, like we talked about, disastrously. Weird TikTok videos, right? Funky Southern accents. The (laughs) LSU fans were not in on him. Well, if you go check out their message boards now, it's a whole lot of like, you know what? I don't really care what this guy talks like or all the kind of stuff he's done on the sidelines or what else. This dude's a winner and I'm all in. They're loving him, right? They love this man right now. They're recruiting very well in the future. He doesn't really have to recruit if he wins. And that's the benefit of being at LSU, which we said. LSU players will play there if the community's behind the team. Sensational win. Excellent football game. Gutsy going for two finish. I mean, this was everything I think you could dream up as a new coach. If you're a Florida fan and you're saying, wait a minute, should we have hired Brian Kelly? He was available. That's true. He was available. We didn't talk to him. Brian Kelly was always going to be the short-term winner of this contest. The long-term play is Billy Napier. Now, that may not work out. We've, that's what we said. Billy's more of an unknown, but Billy has the highest ceiling. That's a thought. And Kelly's right there, which we said. But you would imagine Billy recruiting culture, sustainability length. He could be the winner of this race if it's a marathon. But in one year, sure. Brian Kelly, sensational start no matter how you dice it, especially after losing to Florida State in week one, looking really discombobulated. He has got that team playing great football, and that's all due to coaching. I mean, you can watch him from week one to where they are now. This is a very different football team, a very different football team. That's a sensational win. And it's funny, talking about Alabama, I mean, <laughs> it's only two losses, but it feels like a lot for them. 
And I got to believe heads are going to roll at that coordinator position in the offseason. All right. I got the benefit of picking after you, so I got to take Texas when you didn't take them. And they win 34-27. <laughs> the most unpredictable team in America. So thanks for going first last week. Yep. I mean, I just can't shake this curse no matter what I do. It's very frustrating. I thought I had it. Uh, I mean, I can't. That's a great win for Texas, it in is. my opinion. It's a really good win. Kansas State's a good football team. And Texas, you know, obviously, I think they are trending up. They're still Texas. They still do weird stuff. But it feels like Sarkeesian's got them trending up, especially with recruiting and who they have a quarterback. But I don't uh, know. We'll see this next week. But I was going to say, all I have to do is pick them. If we want them to trend down, I'll pick them this week, and they'll go down. All right. Notre Dame just pants his Clemson. 35-14, they removed them from the playoff discussion. Not totally, but knocks them back by a large amount. We're going to have to hopefully see them in the playoff. They were like kind of a paper tiger there, and this is great for Marcus Freeman. Man, Clemson just got exposed here. Yes, they did. That's why I dropped them from my playoff team before i put them in just because i thought they were going to win the rest you of their did, games but they were trash and they got <laughs> they got they paid the price but look marcus freeman again it's the season it's not what you do in your first four games he's in year one of his tenure notre dame had they've, they've not been great right they had a bad result two weeks ago i think they've had good results outside of that but they were up 28 nothing in this football game at home and you better believe the notre dame football is feeling it right now he's for got sure. a top class on the hook again next year he's recruiting historically well for notre dame He's turned this team around. Clemson was soft and vulnerable, but they beat them like a drum. And we'll see if Notre Dame can continue their their upswing to finish their season positively. All right, speaking of getting beaten like a drum, whatever adjective you want, I don't know if anyone actually watched this game in the stadium or outside of it, but Florida State just puts it on Miami 45-3. to I mean, we both picked Florida State for good reason, but it's sickening for me to think that what we said last week I think is true, which is that John Ruiz, the Miami booster, I think literally is just existing at this point in time to just take the most important players to U.S. recruiting class and just bribe them. There's no better way to describe it. To play at a broken Miami program. Because I'm not even sure if he cares if they win. I think he gets a personal win by holding back Florida from getting a few elite players that we would need to win. But... We said we didn't like Cristobal as a hire. We said we don't think he's a good mm-hmm. coach. We said that everywhere he's been, success does not follow on the actual field with regards to X's and O's. This has got to feel so bad. This is lower than fan. I thought. I, I mean, they have they have rocked bottomed and then some as a football team. I didn't mind the hire at all. I mean, I, I don't know if I would have given the kind of money they purportedly gave him, but I mean, the guy's going to recruit, but the, you got to get better on the field quicker than this. That's bad. It's way bad. <laughs> All right. The game of the day, the most interesting number one at the time, Tennessee, facing Georgia. Georgia wins 27-13. It's not even really as close as that. I mean, Georgia just kind of shut it down once they had that big lead and the rain started. This is fascinating. You wonder, can anyone limit Tennessee? Is anyone willing to do what it takes to beat them? Georgia was and they could do it and that was impressive that was beyond impressive and of course the big storyline for us was right what what we had put out there here's the game plan to stop tennessee here's what you have to do florida didn't do it 
Alabama didn't do it. No one else did it. Pitt did it. And then Georgia did it. If you watched the game, you probably got a lot of satisfaction out of hearing Gary Danielson say, it looks like Georgia's just playing a lot of man. Well, that's because they were. Georgia played 19 of their 33 passing snaps and man 58%. That number's actually higher if you look at up until the end of the third quarter because then it kind of started raining a lot. They kind of were up by a lot. They, they put it into more of a, a safety mode. And they brought pressure on 45% of the snaps. So that's the game plan that we said existed. It's a game plan I wish Tony would have done. It's the game plan I'm sure Bama wishes they would have done. But again, for Tyler Rummery, I'm just going to keep saying this. I love to rub it in. Kirby Smart knows what the heck he's doing. This dude is not some buffoon coaching football. In fact, he was willing to do what no one else was willing to do against UG. I mean, against uh, Tennessee, and he smacked him. Now, if you're asking what's the counter to this, James, you love their offense. They got exposed. If you're going to spread teams out east-west like Tennessee does, you have to expect that the best teams are going to play you man, which means that your job is to have players that can win versus man. Tennessee's not there yet. This was always going to be kind of an impossible scenario for them because they're undermanned. But the counter is just have guys that are at least equal, if not better, and then you can win those matchups. Tennessee really only had Jalen Hyatt who could win one-on-one matchups. And even then, he's not going to be winning at Georgia's corners at any kind of rate that's like, you know, better than 50%. So that's what happened in this football game. The talent was there, got exposed. Georgia did exactly what Tennessee didn't want them to do, which is play man and make the window small and hooker did what we thought he would do in those scenarios. He's not that kind of quarterback. He right. missed throws early right. on before it started raining. He missed receivers that had toasted Georgia's DBs and man. But the reason you do that is because Hooker is not a, in my opinion, despite his super high completion percentage, is not an accurate ball placer when it comes to those kind of routes. He's kind of erratic. Great game plan by UGA. Great football game yeah. by them in general. And again, they're they're rolling. They're absolutely rolling. I love that they did this. It was fascinating. I wanted to see if they would do it. Uh, this is funny that since the very beginning of the season, you're like, hey, Pitt did this, and no one else is willing to try it. Maybe because they couldn't, but I would have liked to see anybody try, including us. But the first play of the game, Georgia's in their kind of traditional zone coverage, and Tennessee just rips an easy completion. They immediately switched to man, shut them down. <laughs> it was like, okay. Well, that's really interesting, and it just kind of goes from there. You're right that you have to have special players to beat special players. You're just going to play straight up like that. Again, all things being equal, you should be able to win. If you have, if your receiver knows where he's going and the, and the DB doesn't, at least enough of time to be productive. But you're right. I mean, some of the other guys, Cedric Tillman is good. Brew McCory is good. But they're not, they're not guys who are just going to flat beat their guy every time, especially with the caliber corner that Georgia has. So um, really, really interesting. And we'll see where we go from here. I mean, I think if you're Tennessee, you're going to most likely win the rest of the games on your schedule. Yeah. Shake it off. No big deal. Shake it off and then spend all your time thinking about how you're going to beat the next team that employs that style of defense against you. And you're going to have to find some, I think some more creative ways, because again, you can't just trust that you're going to line up and beat them. You saw that they proved it to you now find some ways to be able to counter that that doesn't involve having better athletes. All right. And a game that was not on my radar, but was hilarious to track SMU 77, Houston 63. I mean, this was unbelievable. It broke the record for points scored in regulation, almost broke the record for points scored in a game, including like seven overtime games. 
And so <laughs> I can't imagine what it was like to watch this game live or, or be a fan of one of these teams. It, the game was nuts. I mean, it's crazy. That's a that's a basketball game, like you said, for sure. Um, SMU's got it rolling. Houston, downer of a year. They're supposed to be much better this year. Didn't quite achieve that, but SMU's having a nice year. Daytona Steve, no loss November, gets to game two of his 9-11 parlay, if you will, 9-1-1 parlay. And he promptly bows out with Virginia. UNC was favored by nine and a half. Virginia looked like they were going to be inside that number almost the entire game. And then they were not. (laughs) So unfortunately, down he goes. Uh, Mercifully, Daytona Steve is out trying to clear his mind on his annual hiking trip where he stops smoking, stops betting on greyhounds, stops doing things (laughs) that are bad for his body and tries to cleanse things. So perhaps he'll have something special for us as we move into the holiday season. (laughs) All right, SEC roundup, Mississippi State over Auburn in OT. Uh, Cadillac Williams roaming the sideline. Young guy yeah. roaming the sideline there, Alan. I know. Auburn broke the trend of the you know, new coach winning in their debut, but they got close. They yeah. were close. They were feisty. Team played really hard. Uh, Mississippi State escapes with that one. All right, South Carolina takes care of Vanderbilt 38-27 again. Mm-hmm. Vanderbilt, a little feisty. A little frisky a little there. Feisty. Uh, news, Alan. Yeah. Um, Gator roster, one of the Kamaris. Except for he's Kamar Wilcox in portals out. There's a lot of rumors that Kamari Wilson was going to be gone, but I don't know if that got switched in the process there. But Kamar Wilcox Wilcoxon is off the team, I guess, into the transfer portal. Uh, he's a guy that not played a ton, but um, yeah, hard to say what his future held. This might have been the most likely outcome for him. And then USF fires Jeff Scott. Not unexpected, but. Uh, Opening now there in Tampa, we'll see who they end up hiring. It'll be interesting. It will also be interesting because Napier is really good friends with Jeff Scott. Jeff Scott, yeah. obviously an accomplished offensive coordinator. Don't know if anything's going to happen there. Might need a job. But he might. He will need a job. But the question is, will Florida be interested? I don't know. Either way, that's interesting. They are friends. Yeah. Again, Jeff Scott, great resumes and offensive mind. Well, maybe Billy can open up his own home for wayward head coaches, analyst position. I mean, at the very least, that would make sense. There you go. Are you ready to talk about this game, Cox? Let's talk about the Cox. <laughs> All right. This game is at 4 p.m. in the swamp. 4 p.m. That's an unusual yeah, NFL the new, Sunday start. It's the new SEC network yeah. time slot for the game. They don't really have anything to do with, like know what to do with. It's not the prime time. It's not noon. I like it, though, it's especially opposite, in, the, in the fall, 4 o'clock time slot. Well, it's opposite great. the SEC game of the week on CBS, which is why it's kind of funny. Yep. South Carolina is 6-3. Very robust for them. Florida is five and four, but is favored by eight. If you remember, South Carolina won forty to seventeen last year. An embarrassing effort from the Gator. Um, before we get into the rundown for Carolina, you have a little. Big we got something. We got something. Corner? We got something new this week. So, you know, if you guys have great suggestions as listeners, or even questionable suggestions, <laughs> we will try them because it's all about having fun and educating you on football. And ourselves, rather. Uh, so Big Homie, as all of you may know, was the king of the GNFP for a while. He's kind of laying low right now. I, I expect him to probably resurrect himself at some point this season. But he really wanted to do a culture corner because he really loved the weirdos part of the A&M opening last week, which we did not describe the weirdness of Texas A&M and their fake cadet corps and stuff like that. But he had texted me during the game and said, did you know that A&M's cadet corps uh, is not real. And I said, actually, yes, I did. Because one of the guys that plays flag football with me played quarterback at Texas, and he's a big Texas guy, and he loves to joke about AM's fake cadet corps. 
So we went back and forth and he said, Hey, could I do like a, like a, I'm calling it a culture corner, but can I do like a prep on the team we're playing each week? It kind of funny stuff, like interesting things. And I said, yeah, sure. Let's do it. So I love it. we're going to test this out. If you like it, let us know on social media or in comments. And if you hate it, let us know and we'll just take it out. Uh, but essentially why are they called the Gamecocks? This is big homies culture corner. He has three points here. It's number one. Well, they're called the Gamecocks to honor the revolutionary war hero, Thomas Sumter. I actually never knew this, Alan. And that yeah, I'm, I'm ready for this. Yeah. The Brigadier General and future South Carolina Senator was called the Carolina Gamecock for his fierce fighting style. There's a street that is named for him that runs through South Carolina's campus as well along the, the school's historic horseshoe. So that's why they're called the Gamecocks. The Gamecocks. There so that, you go. That's there great. Go. I love the weirdness of that. Yeah. Thomas Sumter, right? There you go. All right. Uh, their best years were obviously, you know, because of Steve Spurrier. In fact, prior to Steve Spurrier, South Carolina just had one 10 win season in school history. If you're an older Gator fan, you remember this being the case. They were really basically a nothing burger in the SEC. Pretty much did a whole lot of nothing until S until Spurrier really did a whole lot of something there. Uh, he's the school's all-time wins leader, had you know multiple 10-win seasons at the helm, and really led an entire decade of excellent Gamecocks football. So Spurrier also won a game with the Swamp which he was did. a big deal because South Carolina never won the Swamp before then. And, the, yeah, he's their winningest coach, their best coach. Yeah, I mean, it's everything you could think of. He's the guy. And Spurrier loves that. So at Florida, most people think of him as Florida's best coach. That's pretty you know, clear. And then I think uh, at South Carolina, they definitely think that. So two for two there. Maybe Duke even as well. But fans' reputation, this is kind of fun. I think this is the part of the culture corner each week that's going to be pretty great. I did not know this either. So Clemson fans call them the SEC Gamecocks. Why, you ask? If they aren't rooting for the Gamecocks, they're rooting for the SEC in general, quote, aggressively. And anyone who's playing against Clemson at all times. They're often seen wearing multiple teams' gear or having two teams' logos on their shirts or vehicles. Hmm. He says, if you don't believe this for yourself, there's endless evidence on the internet. Just Google it. He sent me several attached images, and it was hysterical. Just as he said, you have T-shirts with multiple logos, two logos. I mean, it's... It's wild. I didn't know this. But, I uh, anyway, that's what all the Clemson fans accuse them the of. SEC so Gamecocks, wanna, all right. Yeah, the SEC Gamecocks. So good for them. You know what? Good for South Carolina supporting the SEC. We're all about that. So that's <laughs> that's who Florida's going to you know face this week in the swamp. So there's your culture corner, and now we'll get into the analytics. All right. First little overview of who they are. Shane Beamer, son of the legendary Coach Beamer from Vatek. Second season there, he's 12 and 8. Um, their talent, they're... They're a decently talented team. They're 20th in the talent composite. UF is 12th. And, you know, their coaching staff, Marcus Satterfield, second season, Clayton White is the DC in his first, I guess. Not the most high-profile guys. Um, so it's interesting to see kind of the way Shane Beamer is trying to build this out. Um, they do have a few notable guys here on offense, of course. Very high-profile transfer, Spencer Rattler. He's got 1,800 yards passing, ATDs, nine picks. Marshawn Lloyd, the running back, he's their feature back, two times the carries anybody else. And they're a wide receiver, the guy who leads the team in targets, Antoine Wells Jr., 41 receptions, 574 yards, four TDs. Um, they're, they're different. They look different than they did last year with – Spencer Rattler, um, they were playing just a parade of like walk-ons last year and they and grad assistants or whoever they had still beat Florida with that, of course. But um, when you watch them or when you look at their statistical profile, what jumps out to you? 
Well, their offense is not very good, and we're going to kind of get into that. As you know, Spencer Rattler, a guy who was the number one overall guy, as you mentioned, five-star quarterback, has never really lived up to that. I think to a lot of people, it's very curious he chose to go to South Carolina. He did have ties to Beamer, but he's kind of playing a little bit on hard mode. Uh, He is a gunslinger, so he'll push the ball down the field. But on offense, they're 50-50 run pass. Bad news for Florida, they throw a bunch of passes to their two tight ends two different tight ends and their running backs stuff that's killed florida in the middle of the field they run play action 25 percent of the time not a lot of pre-snap motion no jet sweeps almost no rpos um, so they're pretty standard pretty pro style on how they run their offense here's what's really interesting about them uh, they run a lot of 11 personnel that's not interesting they run a decent amount of 12 personnel that's interesting given florida struggle but 50 percent of their passes 50 percent are at or behind the line of scrimmage. Hmm. 25% are between one and five yards. And 20% are 20 yards or longer. So it's basically like if they run a play that's not quick game, it's a bomb. Just slinging the ball down the field, which is you know kind of Spencer Rattler's MO. Um, as far as stats themselves go, there's an edge of South Carolina in the running game. They're 74th, not very good, in their yards per rush. But Florida, of course, is amongst the worst in the country in what they allow in yards per rush. They're 119th. SC does not rush for a lot of yards per game either. They're 95th in the country. So this matchup, you could say, is a slight edge to SC here, Alan. In the passing game, South Carolina is 45th in yards per pass, and Florida is 105th in yards per pass allowed. So edge to them there. Third down conversion, they're 73rd at 38%. Not super great. Florida, of course, their third down conversion allowed is amongst the country's worst. South Carolina is 111th in interceptions thrown and 91st in sacks allowed. Two things you do not want to be as an offense. They're 35th in points per play, while UF allows 93rd. They're 93rd, not allows, but it's 93rd in points per play. So what does that mean? Edge SC running game, edge SC passing game, edge SC in third down conversion, and then edge SC in points per play. If you just kind of looked at stats like that, which is why you shouldn't per se, you could get the wrong impression that, hey, South Carolina's offense should probably dominate Florida's defense. Of course, any team can dominate Florida's defense, but it's important to look at the film to kind of see what this SC team is like. And SC is very simple here, Alan. South Carolina is very simple here. Here are the notes. If you're going to bring pressure against them, you ideally want to bring more than five. Spencer Rattler actually has the most success versus five-man rushes. He seems to be more comfortable with that. Uh, If you're going to wind up bringing pressure, bring six, right? Bring a few more. His completion rate versus versus man is not very good. And that's not, I think, largely due to him as much as it is how much pressure they allow. They allow so much pressure. Teams play man. They bring pressure. His receivers do not get separation. He does not have a talented bevy of receivers to work with. So... 40% 40% completion rate versus man with a 46.4 rating, a 66 completion rate versus zone with a 95.1 rating. He is a 33 quarterback rating when under pressure. So very simple. What's Florida's game plan in this game? Generate pressure, play a lot of man. Layup, bunny, simplicity, tactical obviousness, just do it. Now, are we going to do it? <laughs> We're going to find out. But I think that is more important than everything I just gave you kind of a South Carolina being a middling to lower level running team, a middling passing team. They're not a good offense, but they can be successful if you give them looks they're comfortable with. 
<laughs> knowing what to expect out of the defense, are you going to get a lightly better version that you saw in the second half of versus A&M where they're being able to pressure the quarterback, they're playing more man looks? Are they going to do some of the stuff? They're going to drop into cover three and give up bunny third downs over and over and over again. South Carolina can do that stuff. They, if you give it to them, they will take it from you. I do like our defensive pressure against their offensive line, so we'll see how that turns out. All right, defensively, <laughs> their biggest name guy is Jordan Birch, who's a linebacker. He's got 40 tackles, three and a half sacks. He's a former five-star guy. Uh, defensive back Nick Emanwari. I don't know if that's right. Super glad you did yeah. that and not me. Uh, 47 solo tackles. So when you're looking at their defensive personnel and really just their overall stats, um, yeah, are they, anything to jump out of you is that they're, anything they're doing well or not well? Yeah, for sure. Their D-line generates almost all of their pressure, which is both good and bad. Both of their defensive ends are heavy pressure guys, so if they know it's a passing situation, they are good at getting to the quarterback. Uh, their linebackers don't generate a lot of pressure. They're not sending a lot of like blitzes with nickels or, or safeties or corners that are getting home, so their D-line will be the one to do it along with their D-tackle, so that tells you they're a competent unit generating pressure. They will blitz 33% of the time, which is a pretty high. You know, Florida's beneath 20%, so is a school like Georgia. Uh, they almost never drop eight, which is very interesting. Just nine snaps against Power 5 schools, dropping eight. So basically rushing three, something we saw A&M have a lot of success against Florida with, and other teams have as well, largely because AR leaves the pocket a bit early. They play a lot of man defense, 35%, very high rate. They are much better in their man defense versus zone defense. So that makes sense. They lean into that. They play a lot of man uh, as far as what the statistical edges look like, there's an edge to UF in the running game. Not surprising. UF's top 10 in their yards per rush. South Carolina's 92nd. So big, big advantage there for Florida in the passing game. Florida 73rd and seven yard, uh, seven, 73rd with seven yards per pass. That's up from last week. And then SC is 52nd in seven yards per pass allowed. So there you go. Exactly equal. Third down conversion, an edge to UF, which is kind of funny because obviously we're not great at this, but South Carolina's defense is 98th with a 43% third down conversion rate allowed. That is not good. UF is 70th at 38% conversion. So two teams that are not good in that area at all going against each other. And then South Carolina is generating a lot of interceptions, but they're 109th in sacks. So again, not a lot of pressure. That's largely due to the fact that they're only really getting pressure on obvious passing downs in obvious passing situations. Outside of that, they struggle to generate pressure from their linebackers or as a front seven outside of those front four. Uh, points per play, edge to UF. South Carolina, 59th in points allowed. UF, 36th in points per play. So all in all, again, you see a lot of kind of middling numbers here, but the biggest advantage for either team on either side of the ball is UF's running game versus South Carolina's rushing defense. That's the best advantage either team has. And I think that's largely why Florida is favored. They're playing at home. Plus they have that big stats edge. As far as what Florida should do on offense, they should expect pressure and they should expect man defense. The good news is they faced man defense pretty heavily against A&M did very well. Uh, so that should bode well. Something that Florida had struggled with prior to that game was in fact man coverage. Their safeties are very, very weak in coverage. So if you're going to get man, Florida's going to want to do enough. And this is where 11 personnel helps. Get 11 yeah. personnel, go empty. You should get a matchup you like versus one of their safeties. You are far better off attacking their safeties than you are their corners. So if I'm coaching AR and I'm telling him pre-snap, don't worry about just looking for your best receiver versus whoever. Take whoever's got the safeties on them. They are weak in coverage, so we want. 
right there. Uh, obviously, this is reductive but simple, Alan. The game plan here for Florida is Florida just has to be able to run the ball here well. Again, it's the biggest advantage either team has. It's what should determine this football game. If Florida can run the run the ball well here, they're going to be able to score enough points. South Carolina's offense is really just a moderately better version of AM's. Kind of similar. Make a lot of bad plays, turn the ball over a lot. They allow a lot of negative plays to happen. They'll get behind schedule pretty easily. They can still hurt you. That's why South Carolina can pull off some of these big upsets. They can compete with anybody. Uh, but if you're able to control your side of the ball with running the football, right, you should have kind of the world opened up to you. All right, you want to go through these categories here? Special teams, edge to South Carolina, 100% field goal rate. Not missed a single field goal all year. Pretty impressive. Good job for them. Penalties, edge for Florida, turnover margin, edge for Florida, and time possession, a push. Yeah, neither team is good at possessing the ball a lot, which again makes sense because both teams have struggled to be consistent. Anything to note here on injuries, suspension, depth chart? Well, you're asking me. I like this. Uh, not that I know of unless you know of something. I don't think so. Shorter. Oh, they up the, we, yeah. These are on Wednesdays yeah. now. So yeah. obviously we have guys. You know, Devin Moore's out for the season, I think. Mm-hmm. We know that. Probably till the bowl game. Shorter, I think we don't know how long he's out I'm not for. sure about him. I think Zipper's out for and a little while. Zipper's out for, I think, the season two. Um, so we know those things. But on Wednesday is when they actually release what's happening. So we're in the dark. Keys to the game time. I love this. We've gotten really, really good at this. This is like my new kind of favorite segment. Yeah. And you get to go first here. So what are your keys to this one? This is hard because I, I think what you would like to limit uh, Spencer Rattler is on on those big plays, right? So can you control? I think we can do a decent job of controlling some of their short stuff. I don't want to get caught with the big plays. And I know that uh, might tempt Tony to play more softer coverages, which is also not good for us either. So I, I'm not sure quite what I would like Florida to do here. Um, but I think... On the plus side of this, let me let me go back to uh, number of sacks generated. Let me let me just reverse course here. Um, I think four sacks here. I would like to see um, that they're willing to give up pressure. And if we're going to pressure in the way we did effectively against A and M, I think that bodes well for us. And then offense, I think we're you've you've said correctly that the theme of what we want to do, and we've gone over and over again to this well of the running game. But I would like to see two hundred fifty yards rushing at a minimum. I think if we do that, I think we'll be fairly successful. I like those keys. Those are good keys. Four sacks and then 250 yards rushing is what you have. Mm-hmm. I am going to do something that I have never done before, which is I'm just going to carbon copy exactly huh. what I had for AM because it's really the same kind of thing. In fact, AM's defense was just a better version versus the pass, and they were a worse version versus the run, and their offense was uh, was inverted as well better version running worse version passing so i still like these numbers i'm going to go two turnovers on defense i'm going to go 225 yards passing for florida and rushing wise just 200 yards i like your number of 250 i think that really cements it but i think with with south carolina in general just like with a&m if we get 200 i think we'll be just fine um so we've got basically i think what you know if we get four sacks two turnovers 250 yards rushing that's going to be a Florida win. And that's what we've Agreed. got here for our keys. All right. So the question is, do we get those things? Yeah. And now so, you're going to ask me what my prediction yeah, is. Yeah. What do you get to go first here? I love going first. Not at all, actually. All right. This game on film, unlike the AM game, it feels more comfortable because we have one more data point of what Florida did in the second half. Although a lot of that was fluky. I do. I'm a big believer in year one culture, chemistry, belief. We came through our most tumultuous period. If this is 
what we've used as an analogy all year long, season one of our new Netflix show, where we have kind of a cast of characters and a familiar brand, but also brand new people. We've learned something about this football team. Something we knew, they compete all the way until the end. Something we didn't know, they absorbed losing their best defensive player. They absorbed losing their number one overall recruit for the upcoming season. They absorbed losing a lot of rumors of people leaving and dropping off. They absorbed a lot of issues with what felt like the locker room might be splintering some. And they went out and have played their best half of football to date on the road. They got a big win. So now they're at home. It's a sold out game. Unbelievable. Four sellouts. Hats off to something we talked about with Scott Strickland in the offseason, the flex pass. That's been a major reason why Florida's selling all these games out, but good for them. Sold out environment, four o'clock game. Second half will be at night. Huge opportunity for Florida to continue to post a positive narrative here. Everything is here for Florida not to let us down. Please don't let us down. I think in this case, looking at the film of South Carolina, looking where Florida's at, kind of seeing where these two teams are going, this is yet another unpredictable game because South Carolina, if they have it, they have it, and they're going to play you until the end. And I'm going to hope that South Carolina team does not show up because otherwise it's going to be a nail-biter. But I do think that Florida gets this done, Allen, and I think Florida wins this football game 35-27. to So I'm going to go with a push on the spread. I just cannot, good faith, expect Florida to really stop anyone on defense until we get more than one half of, of stops accordingly. So I got 35-27 Florida wins. What do you have? Well, we've been close before. We're going to be exact here, 35-27. Get out of here. Yeah, Look it's at this. really weird. It's, it's really uncanny. You started people, the worst People don't out of your believe mouth. us when we say that we pick these and no one knows until we say them. Man, I, the, I kind of toyed around with the South Carolina number, like how close to get them. 35 feels about right for Florida here. Could this be 35-30, 35-33? Could this be like 35-20? If I felt confident in our defense, I think 35-20. On the other end, 35-33 feels right there. Or if Florida, things go wrong, this could be a 20-37 game where South Carolina wins. This is I, I like Florida in this game, but the the number of times that South Carolina wins in 100, if you simulate this 100 times, is way too high for my comfort. It's a lot. It's a lot more than I think what a lot of Florida right. fans are thinking right now. I'm thinking maybe up to 35, 40% of the oh, time. Oh, for sure. And for sure. so it's not quite to the coin flip, but it's close. 40% might be even low. So Florida needs to play well. Statistically profiling these two teams, there's not a lot separating them. So I think Florida is obviously more talented. They have a much higher ceiling of what they're able to accomplish. But will they play to that? I don't know. I, you know, we've talked about how well AR has played on the road. It'd be great to see him come out and have a really awesome home game after this stretch. And that's what would be great is a lot of Florida fans have not seen AR perform in person like he's performed at LSU last year, at Tennessee this year, at AM. That would give the crowd such a boost. For sure. Obviously, Utah was really nice rushing performance, but it was not passing. But if we're out there slinging the ball around and he's making big runs, I mean, that's going to change the environment in the stadium as well. So we, we really want to see it. I think you and I are both begging for it, imploring it. But at this stage, it's safe to say that both of these teams are wildly unpredictable and inconsistent. And that's why it's still really, really hard to kind of predict and project what Florida's going to do week in and week out. But the opportunity is really here in front of us now to build momentum and, and close the season strong. And I, I know I'm certainly hoping. And a loss will hurt. Bad. No, a loss will reset the narrative back to the negative dark timeline. And we don't want that. So this feels like a really important chance to win. 
And it's also, if you're hungry, really important to use HelloFresh because that is going to give you those pre-proportioned, farm-fresh, delicious ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Why grocery shop? Maybe use Instacart. That's nice, right? But with HelloFresh, you can still use Instacart, but you can also have HelloFresh to be the other meals you have during the week. As we keep mentioning, our resident dietitian, Amber, has gone through the testing phase of multiple of these HelloFresh boxes, and she pretty much loves all of them, especially the fit and wholesome boxes. If you yourself want to try them, you can get 65% off if you go to HelloFresh.com slash GNFP65 and use the code GNFP65, again, for 65% off plus free shipping. With that, we turn our attention to the other games occurring this weekend. Florida's going to take care of South Carolina, get a nice big win in the mid-afternoon. But we have other battles to get to. Purdue at Illinois. I know that's on top of all of your radars. Ah. I know that's what you're thinking of. Alan, I know you've been thinking about it. Does Illinois bounce back after a loss last week at home, or do they take another L? I think they're going to take an L here. Um, I like Purdue in this game, at least to get inside the number. It wouldn't surprise me if Illinois won, but... Uh, yeah, I don't really trust him after last week. A six and a half seems steep. Purdue's a, a game team. I don't know what to do here with this one. I'm going to, uh, six and a half seems huge for Illinois, but I'm going to inexplicably do it. Iowa State, the clones. I love how often the clones make it into our picks here. At Oklahoma State, who's in an absolute free fall. I mean, this is wild that Iowa State's favored by one, coming off some really bad football by them on the road here. I got to take the clones. I don't know. What I'm getting for Oklahoma State, they just got waxed two weeks in a row. Yeah, they're completely not trustable. Neither is Iowa State. I mean, if Oklahoma State was even ever good, this is when they have to bounce back. So I'll take them. Georgia favored by just 16 and a half mm. at Mississippi State. This is the classic Vegas letdown, maybe after a huge win here. <laughs> this, this is tricky. Um, what kind of Mississippi State are we going to get here? They've not played well in the back half of the season. If this number was bigger, I'd take them, but I'll, I'll take Georgia here. Yeah, I'm taking Georgia here all the way. Look, Georgia just faced a more difficult version of the air raid, in my opinion. Vertical, high-low team. Now they're going to face more of an east-west air raid. Uh, I think they're going to eat that stuff up. I think they'll be well-suited to stop what Mississippi State did. It's unfortunate, I think, for Mississippi State that, that Georgia drew Tennessee and Mississippi State back-to-back. Again, two very air raid-heavy teams. Uh, Washington at Oregon, Oregon favored by 13 and a half. Dan Landing rumored potentially to have interest in the Auburn job mm. here. Maybe he's distracted. I don't know. I'll take Oregon here. They've been really explosive offensively. The Bo Nix experience is on the high end right now. Yeah, you got to ride this buzzsaw for Oregon after that Georgia drubbing. They've been playing great football. Pac-12, I think, is probably best hope for getting a playoff team. Of course, USC is still looming as well. All right, A&M at Auburn sensational scintillating matchup here where Auburn is favored by two man Auburn favored here is that crazy or what crazy that is actually crazy I, I don't know um Auburn played better last week question mark can I really take Auburn being favored though I cannot I have to go back to AM, even though I do not want to do that okay that's all. fair yeah I think um we didn't get to mention him by name, obviously, but the five-star freshman for A&M, the receiver wearing number one, Stewart. Um, I mentioned him. You did. That dude is sensational. He was slaying every single one of Florida's DBs that even guarded him. He had eight catches. He probably should have had 17 catches. They should have thrown to him every single time. That dude is is worth all the hype as far as a route runner. He ran every kind of route you wanted. He's 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 nice. 
I don't think Auburn has that kind of talent on their side of the ball even at all. And I think with the freshman playing now, not with the flu, I like AM. Florida State heads into the Carrier Dome, favored by six and a half, where, of course, you know, Alan, you can't just walk into the Carrier Dome and get a win. They might, though. I'll, I'll take them at six and a half. Six and a half. Now I'm really questioning everything at six and a half. Before, B-Red had told us this is a pick em. We had to pause the show and look up some of the lines, B-Red, because you left us hanging. <laughs> Have to troll the producer when you can. Um, six and a half as... as mm. I don't know. It's not seven, so I'm going to take Florida State. That's great rationale. All right, North Carolina and the sensational Drake May. Guy's an absolute baller. On the road against Wake Forest, who seems to be free-falling. And Wake Forest favored by three and a half. Yeah, I mean, I I guess you're thinking that UNC defense is going to give up a billion to Wake Forest, but I don't know. I'm feeling better about North Carolina right now. I'll take them. I'm going to take the team that's trending up with more momentum, and that's going to be North Carolina. All right, number 25, UCF. Nice season so far. Champions of everything, just like they are every single year. At number 19, Tulane, having an even better season, favored by two at home. I love Tulane here. Um, I love what they've been putting on the field this year. This is like their first ranked game at home since like the 30s when they were in the SEC or something like that. So they're going to be hyped for this, I'm sure. Yeah, they're balling. Really, really good football team. If you haven't a chance to watch them, check them out in this one. Uh, Missouri on the road against Tennessee. Tennessee at home. It's a, it's a good thing I think Tennessee gets this game at home and not on the road. Missouri, again, a team that plays a lot of man, that pressures a lot. Those are two good things when you're playing Tennessee. Tennessee favored by 21. I'm tempted to pick Missouri here just to see if they could do a little bit of what Georgia did and limit Tennessee, but I think late here, Tennessee makes enough plays. They break this open. I, I think they're going to win. And Missouri's offense is just so anemic, but 21's a big number, and I think Missouri has what it takes to be able to slow Tennessee down enough. They yeah. should be able, and they're going to play, I think, what you need to play against Tennessee to keep this score maybe close enough for that. Uh, Louisville on the road against Clemson. Clemson, obviously, who knows what they're thinking right now, but Clemson turned by 7.5 over Louisville. Clemson could certainly lose this. Um, I don't like that hook there at 7.5, but... Uh, Louisville's been so up and down. They've burned me a bunch. Um, I'm going to take Clemson here. I don't feel good about it. Yeah, Louisville's impossible to know. And Clemson, I think Clemson might be reeling some. I'm going to take Louisville because of that. All right, LSU. It's flying sky high. Mm. This feels like a trick. Vegas says they're only three points better than Arkansas. At Arkansas. Do you buy this? I don't know. Yes, enough that I'll take LSU at three minus I mean, three. I'm buying. I'm backing up the brinks for that. I mean, I mean it does LSU's scare me when that getting, line is that wonky. Yeah, they're only getting better every single week. I'm taking LSU. All right, number 13, Kansas State, a team that's really hard to get a handle on against another team that's hard to get a handle on, Baylor, and Baylor is favored. Yeah, I'll take Baylor here. They've been playing really well. All right, yeah. I mean, obviously, Texas defeats Kansas State at home. Now they got to go on the road to an improving Baylor team. I will also take Baylor. Undefeated TCU against texas this one is the one that matters we talked about it a couple weeks ago texas favored by seven and a half thank the lord that you have to pick first oh man (laughs) i don't trust texas at all but i think from the beginning of the year i was thinking that tcu was going to pick up a loss somewhere along the way it's just their schedule so tough for them um I can't believe I'll say this, but I'll pick Texas here. I can't believe I was going to pick with you no matter what. 
<laughs> but now I'm going to probably gift you a win because I've, right. got, I've got to take seven and a half points being given to an undefeated TCU team. I have to. Number six, Alabama favored by just 11 and a half. Vegas has really come down on this Bama team playing a lot of close games at Ole Miss. Lane Kiffin, you know there's mm. nothing more than he wants than to beat Saban. I'll take Alabama here. I I think Ole Miss is going to be able to score with them. I don't know, though. I mean, this Ole Miss defense is not good. I think it's just what they need for Alabama to get right a little bit. I'm wondering if Lane Kiffin mm. is going to take a little bit of a page out of the Tennessee playbook and just maybe spread his offense out a little wider. He's a guy who loves to spread it east-west too, but primarily it's more for bubble screens, not so vertical. I don't know if he takes a little bit of that. So I just don't know if Jackson Dark can take advantage of that. To his advantage. But I also just don't think that this Ole Miss team is complete enough. I think their ranking is largely due to the fact that they played one of the softer schedules in the SEC. And this Alabama team is still good. They played a really tough schedule. They're not what they should have been this year. They're definitely disappointing. But I think 11 and a half is, is, is satisfactory. So we'll stick with that one. All right. With that, Alan, we've, we've, there's Daytona Steve. Daytona Steve's again out cleansing his mind and soul. <laughs> So he's gone. Uh, basketball season starts yeah, tonight. tonight. I'm going to head to the game against Stony Brook after are we you, finish recording. Are go. you excited for the season? I'm stoked. It's newness, right? This is another new Netflix season where we get to see what's happening. We get to see if this team is good or bad. And perhaps five months from now, I'm going to be like, oh, man, it was terrible. Maybe a month from now, I'm going to think it's terrible. Uh, but I have high hopes. Uh, I think Golden, and again, from everyone I know that's inside the basketball circles, this guy's like an NBA coach co- coaching college basketball. So I think a lot of the things that drove me crazy about Mike White, at the very least, will not be happening with Golden. Now, whether or not we win stuff, that's going to be, can we get talent? But I at least want to see a team that does competent basketball things. And by all accounts, we should see that. That's going to nurture my basketball soul. Same. I'm really looking forward to seeing the new guys again. I think we get really high on transfers. So I, I think just maybe let's temper our expectations for some of these guys a little bit. But I think this could be a very functional team with the pieces that fit together and that they could really gel by the end of the year, but I think it might be a little rocky at the beginning. Um, I'm excited to see them play and what style they employ and how all these guys look. So yeah, very excited to see it. Um, and me too. And I think it's safe to say that we need to have our basketball insider on. So we'll make sure we <laughs> yeah, bring him back on for next sure. Monday. Look forward to the basketball insider okay. segment with one Justin Seitz. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll close it down here, guys. It's good to be here after a Gator win. Hopefully we're talking to you next week after another one. Hope you have a great week. Stay healthy. Avoid the plague. See you guys soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.